What's up? This is Bakari Sellers, and I'm host of the Bakari Sellers podcast. You know, twice a week on my podcast, we cover all the news, the issues of the day through interviews with all types of guests. And so far, I've talked to people like Deshaun Watson, Charlamagne the God, Donna Brazil, even my good friend Hillary Clinton. So listen to the Bakari Sellers podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Bill Simmons podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game and they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right at first half of the first game. I don't know, West Coast time. That's usually about 5 o'clock, 5.30. Perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com and The Ringer Podcast Network. We're reacting to the election on the Press Box Podcast with David Shoemaker and Brian Curtis. Bakari Sellers is going to be reacting as well tomorrow live on Twitter. All you have to do is go to at Ringer on Twitter and Bakari's uh, post-election podcast will be up there. We're taping everything you're about to hear. I taped on Tuesday morning. Pacific time because, uh, you know, just, <laughs> uh, who the hell knows how the next 24 hours are going to play out. I thought at the very least we could talk about basketball with Rosillo and movies and TV with Wesley Morris. And that could last for the next couple of days on the Thursday podcast. I'll be doing million dollar picks as well as, uh, some sort of election postscript by that time we should probably know who won. So. There you go. And by the way, put up a new rewatchables on Monday night. The American president did it with uh, Amanda Dobbins, Van Lathan, 25th anniversary of that movie. And it's a fascinating rewatch considering everything that's happened the last four years. If you're listening to this, I hope you're staying safe. Um, I'm sending good vibes. So there you go. Let's bring in our friends from Pearl Jam. <laughs> All right, Ryan Rosillo is here taping this. It is late morning Pacific time on Tuesday. It's election day, and uh, obviously that is commanding all the attention. But there's some interesting NBA stuff going on, and it, it a lot of this is timely. A lot of it is fluid. A lot of it's emotion. By the time you hear this, we might even have um, some some things that have come out, some things that have leaked, whatever. But basically, Rosillo, 
it's hard to tell if the season is in danger or not. I have people telling me, no, no, it's going to be fine. They're going to work it out. I have other people saying, I don't know if the players understand what's actually going on here. But the big conundrum is the owners, as we've been talking about on this podcast for a while, want to start the season on December 22nd. They want to play their 70 or 72 games. They want to get as much of the season done as possible because they know they're not going to have fans. Get to the playoffs. Try to finish it by the end of June, early July at the latest and keep that 21-22 season intact so they can get all their revenue back. And that's what they want. And the players are have basically pushed back and said, this is too soon. We can't start the season that fast. We had finals teams, you know, playing in early October. That's crazy. Um, we can't do this. What if, you know, we could do a 50-game season and the owner's like, well, we'd lose a shitload of money if we did that. Um, and I'm going to lay out all, all the money that's at stake first, but that is the conundrum. And it looks like on Friday, they pushed this CBA thing back four times. And on Friday is the new drop dead date to decide, are we doing this or not? The owners have a chance to invoke the force majeure clause, which would basically say because of the pandemic, which was an unnatural event that we wrote into this, um, the pandemic happened. We are now we are now basically terminating this CBA clause and trying to figure out a new financial agreement during this historic American world event that hasn't happened really for a hundred years. So those are all the stakes. Um, how worried are you that the players don't understand the gravity of this, or the people representing the players? I should say. I wouldn't even use the word worried. I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced that they don't know it. I think. I mean, I know it, it sounds ridiculous, but think about like when you're younger and you're like, wait a minute, what's going on with my paycheck? And there's unfortunately, I think a lot of players because it's like, hey, you know, this is your slot. This is what you're going to make. And you, you see the headline. And then once the taxes get taken out of it, once the escrow gets taken out of it, once the agent takes his cut out of it, a lot of the guys like I've seen players argue be like, well, that's not what I really make. And we're like, no, we understand the math part of it. But this is so excessive specific to the escrow stuff, because I mean, we could bore everybody to death with all that kind of stuff. But I just I don't know that enough guys really understand, because my point throughout a all of this, whether it goes back to the restart bill or whatever version of this season it's going to be, if the players don't want to play, if the players are cool with losing all of this money, then why am I going to argue with them? Right. Right. Like if they I've said it the entire time, like going back to last restart, I was like, wait, I thought all the players wanted to play. And we heard some people saying some different things. And then Michelle Roberts got involved. I was like, oh, wait, maybe they don't want to play. And then it comes back. And the vote is overwhelming. The players do want to play. So sometimes I worry about like the voices we we're hearing representing truly 450 basketball players are just a couple guys that are huge stars that banked a ton of money. And that's another topic that I want to get to a little bit later. But I'm, I'm not worried. I'm convinced of it that I, I think it's actually very predictable that the players probably don't fully understand how bad this could get for their paychecks versus what they think they're supposed to make. So I'm going to lay out all the math really quickly. And I think I could do it in a way that if you're listening right now, if you're in your car, you're at the gym, you're in your office, whatever, I think I'll, I'll be able to lay this out in a way that people understand. Here's what the CBA is. When you hear the CBA, it's a collective bargaining agreement. It's basically a 50-50 split of all the revenue they make. Half goes to the players, half goes to the owners. So the 2018-19 season, the one before the pandemic, it was 9.2 billion. That was the revenue. They split it in half. Players get 4.6. Last year it dropped 10% to 8.3 billion. This is key for two reasons. One is they expected it to be 9.8 billion, almost 10 billion. 
So instead, it dropped to $8.3 billion. So that's a $1.5 billion swing that they just weren't expecting. Here's how that broke down. They estimated the China money, this has been in multiple reports, that the fiasco with Daryl cost them at least $200 million. They lost, it seems like, between the last 16 regular season games, whatever, depending on the team, plus all the playoffs, they lost $200 million in sponsorships. They spent almost $200 million on the bubble. And they lost $800 million in gate receipts because of 20% of the regular season plus no playoffs. So it was a $1.5 billion swing. Still somewhat sustainable. Now they have to figure out, all right, what's our cap this year? It's way less revenue. Does the cap drop? There's ways to trick it where you could keep the cap artificially high. Here's the problem is next year. So even if they do a 72-game season with no fans, and 72 is the key number because that locks in all of the RSN fees, which for most teams, the RSN fees lock in for the year if you play 72 games. There's a couple teams like the Lakers. Did you know this? That have like per game, basically. It's almost like a la carte game by game. They get paid for whatever. Yeah, I'd always heard the 70 game numbers. So I didn't know that it was specific that there's a couple that were different. Couple that are different. So the extra 22 games going from 50 to 72 is worth 500 million. So that goes right into the pot. They're still losing with no fans, 72 games, 50 games, whatever. They're losing $4 billion in ticket revenue. So we're taking what should have, the number should have been last year, no pandemic, would have been $9.8 billion. It drops to $8.3 billion, But now we're going into the, this coming year and we're, we're out $4 billion coming out of the gate. So let's say we're starting at like, I don't know, five, five and a half, somewhere in there. Um, you also have a major drop in season ticket renewals across the league. And they guard those numbers like in a vault. You never know team by team what it is, but think about it. Usually they do the season ticket renewals in March, April, May. They tie them to playoff seats, um, stuff like that. Or they try to circle back in the summer. They try to get, nobody's getting season tickets during a pandemic. So that hurts for two reasons. One, it's guaranteed money. So if Rosillo decides I'm getting Clipper season tickets this year, he pays his 12 grand in March. They put it in an account. They get the interest on it for seven months and then whatever, it goes that way. Um, so you lose nine, 10 months interest on that. You also lose in-stadium sponsorships because of no fans. You have all that stuff. When you go to an arena, you see the ads everywhere. You lose all of that. And you lose all the arena money from food, merchandise, drinks. Some of the owners own their arena. So Penance. yeah, <laughs> uh, everything. All right. So there's that. So we're now we're looking at somewhere four and a half billion total, but we're splitting that now in half. Here's the other thing. You mentioned the escrow. The escrow is actually easier to understand. It's not as intimidating as you think. It's basically players are guaranteed between 49 and 51% of the total basketball related income. The NBA withholds 10% of that. Because the goal is basically, if we make so much money, you're not getting like more money. You're getting, this is the cap right here. So we'll we'll weed out a little bit more depending on how we did. But then you're going to get all your escrow back. At the end of the year, you get this check. Yeah. It's awesome. Right, right. Yeah, it's like buy, you buy a house, you do the escrow, you eventually goes through. Um, the owners are saying, hey, how about 40% for this year? And the players are like, what? Because if you start doing the math, and Seth Curry is a good example because I think he makes 40 if that for if that's now forty percent in escrow and you're probably not getting it, he's not making forty; he's making twenty five. And if you're PJ Tucker, you aren't making eight anymore; you're making five. And by the way, that's the number 
especially if you're in California for curry, it's like you're at almost half and now we're going to start taking money out of it. And age so and stuff, yeah. Right. It's it's almost like it's 25% of whatever the number says in your contract that goes along the bottom line. Well, then you get the younger guys. Like, say you're some rookie. Say you're like Robert Williams on the Celtics. You're making, I don't know, $2 million a year. And now that's $1.3 million a year. You Let's say you bought a condo in Brookline, you know, and you thought, oh, this is what I'm making. I can afford this. I have my financial guy said this, this, this. That goes away. Um, if the NBA invoked force majeure and said, we're done, we're, we're blowing the CB up. We couldn't agree on this. And the owners are basically like, we're not, the players aren't running the league anymore. We run the league. We pay for stuff. We're not doing it anymore. Then that new CBA could be any sort of percentage, right? It could be 58% to the owners, 42% to the players. We could have a lockout. There's a lot of bad outcomes and really hear the alternatives. Get ready to get excited, Basil. I already they, have been, so. They could spread out the escrow losses so the players don't get crushed for one season. If you remember in the summer of 2016, when the cap spiked, which led to Durant going to the Warriors, and the feeling at the time was, why didn't we kind of dole this out over four years? Instead of having the cap jump 30 years in 2016, it maybe it should have jumped 10 million a year each year and... You know, it just would have been fair competitively. The players were like, fuck that. Give us the money no. right away. Michelle Roberts said, fuck that. And right. I don't think any of the players understood because John Wall, who I give a lot of credit to, was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Like Reggie Jackson's making more than me because he was up in the year that there was a yeah. gap. And I think if the players had understood, hey, Golden State's going to be able to put Kevin Durant on the team right now. I don't think any of the players understood it. I think it was as simple as the owners offered it. The players said, no way. What are you guys doing? It was like one of those deals. It was like, hey, we want to give you free ice cream. But like, well, not which day, <laughs> you know, right. it, was, well, it was it was a very typical player owner versus each other. And Michelle was at the head of it, which she thought at the time. I think I don't know. I don't think the players understood it. I really don't think they understood what the cap spike was going to do. Well, they definitely didn't understand the if you were a 2016 free agent, you're holding a winning lottery ticket. And that's what led to Mozgov, Luol Dang, Absolutely. Evan Turner. On down the line. Because, right? Because no one, there wasn't a bad contract that year. Because you remember, every time somebody, that like Evan Turner was one of the worst deals, $75 million, and everybody's like, no, 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 the cap goes up. And I got so mad about it on the radio show. Because I was like, what are we doing here? Just anytime anybody signs a deal now, it's good? Because the cap right. went up? Like, what the fuck? Well, I... I think at the time I was confused by it because I just thought the cap went up. That means it's going to keep going up. That was the and joke. It, it, and it was a one-time... But it was a one-time thing. That was it, right? So no, because every, what, what happened was anytime I'd get mad about it, we'd have an analyst come on and be like, well, Ryan, the cap went up. And I go, look, I know I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I know the cap went up. And it was just this default thing where it was like a dude who's telling you about football, like, hey, it's not the Jimmys and Joes. It, you know, it's not the X's and O's, it's the Jimmys and Joes. You're like, yeah, dude, I got it. I got it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um all right, so they could spread out the escrow losses, which is the opposite of how they. So you heard forty percent, forty percent escrow withholding. Well, I'm just saying that I, that is something that was in the papers the other day. I don't know what the number they'll right, settle on. But All of right. it's negotiation. But it is weird because eventually, like this bill becomes due. It's very fitting right now when we talk about different stimulus packages, and all this stuff. Like the owners would have to artificially keep the cap up so that there's not this ridiculous 
spike again or, you know, as they kind of navigate all this stuff and then to say, okay, well, escrow, hey, by the way, even though you're really getting 30%, 40% withheld, it's only going to be 10% per year, but we're going to carry it out over three years. But it's like, well, what about the player who's out of the league in two years? Like there's a lot of parts of that where it has to feel like it's artificially propped up and that bill will come due at some point. Right. You're basically, it's like a loan shark in some ways. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're kind of like, Hey, just, can you run the, you're like worm on the Chesterfield, right? Hey, yeah. can I take this six and just give me the 10% action over the, over the week? So they could spread out the escrow losses and try to soften it. So it's not a one year disaster. They, this has been reported in multiple places too. You start relaxing rules on certain things, right? Like hard alcohol sponsors. They've always been really careful about that. Maybe you let that happen. Maybe you get casinos involved with different teams. You move in some betting stuff. You might maybe you go the whole way and you're you Adam and Eve sex toys and like who, right. who knows? You're just like you're grabbing revenue from wherever you can. You could do a play-in tournament. So you do the 70 or 72 games. The play-in tournament's been, you know, I think it everyone agrees it was a success. Maybe you add six to 10 more playing games that you could then sell as a package for another 100 million. I don't know. But here's the big thing. All right, let's do the math again. The owners are around four and a half to five billion, it looks like, somewhere between four and five, let's say. They were expecting probably 10, 10 billion in revenue in a perfect world where nothing's going wrong. On top of it, you have some of these owners got kind of crushed during the pandemic because the businesses they had, like like Fertitta on the Rockets, there's Daryl's like, hey man, can you let me out of my contract and I won't tell you why? And he's like, cool, <laughs> good luck. Daryl's in Philly a week later. You have Dan some Tony owners, became an assistant. <laughs> Think about right, that. Right. Like Dan Tony's like, ah, I'll just be an assistant. Yeah, I'm out. Uh, you have some owners who got killed in the pandemic. You have other owners who were small market teams who relied on the rev share you know, and relied on the Lakers and the Warriors and all these teams that were over the tax and then they get a cut of that. Everyone's going to be terrified to go against the tax, even unless you're like the Warriors or Philly, like you're real or, or Balmer. For the most part, there's been no tax money. So you got to make up that four and a half billion expansion. As much that? as I'd love, I'd love to do a live ringer show for the expansion draft or have KOC write up the 430 players that should be protected. Um, why Why do we need expansion? Here's why. I'm going to lay it out for you. Just because the influx of cash? Because hockey tried to do that and it didn't work. And all I heard about was, oh, hockey and new markets, southern markets, all that stuff. I understand the, the movement of populations around the United States. There are cities that probably are more deserving. And that's probably your, your answer to this. But I don't know. I'm always very anti-expansion, but I can, can understand I make if the I'm case? an owner. Well, yeah, if I'm an owner, I get a huge check out of it. It's awesome. Let's say the the names I heard and I keep hearing are Seattle Hartford. and Vegas. Seattle and Vegas. Hartford is not in top five. They're no. third. No. Hartford six. didn't make it. Yeah. New Haven, Hartford, Worcester, that none of them are in. Seattle and Vegas. Seattle and Vegas. Okay. Let's say Seattle, two and a half billion. Bomber paid 1.8 for the clips and was buying a little low, considering what happened in the league. Seattle, let's say you're a rich dude. And we've always said Seattle should be like one of the top six markets because of all the tech that's there. You could basically recreate what Golden State has in San Francisco and the Bay Area and Seattle. So let's say Seattle for two and a half. Let's say Vegas for two. I've now gotten to the 4.5. I've now replaced the money. The 30 owners, they cut it 50 million checks each. Now I can survive this year. 
And then going forward, we figured 21, 22, everything's back. And yeah, I'm giving up my, my TV and my, all my, my digital share is now 132 instead of 130, 130th, it's 132. Yeah, but they can, you already know this. They're just yeah. thinking of it as long-term influx of cash. Can I just push back on this right now? Who yeah. the fuck is paying 2.5 billion for a franchise in the middle of a pandemic when they can't have fans? You figure it's not starting for a year. This is your chance to get in the NBA. This is a league that the franchises weren't available for a while. All right, let's say two. Let's say let's say two. Let's say two million for Seattle and one point six for Vegas. You don't think two people would do that? I one hundred percent think, especially in Seattle. You don't think Bezos Seattle deserves would be like, a team? Cool. Yeah, Seattle deserves a team. There's there's no debate to any of that. I've, I've never understood the pushback from Vegas, and then everybody just follows everybody else. You're like Vegas oh, has the stadium. It. Yeah, you, you're right, there. Right. You have a stadium there at stadium. You're just you're right in. I just would wonder if I'm the kind of guy that had cash and knew enough people to put together the cash to go ahead and buy one of these teams. Like we've both heard Minnesota's for sale now for a while as people are circling that. I don't know what the long-term thing is with the Pelicans. They may stay there for a little while, but there've been ownership groups, like three or four different groups trying to circle around that deal. Uh, I think Detroit, I, Detroit's in the mix. Yeah. So I even would though wonder, that guy has a, even though that guy has a shitload of money, I would say that's the least valuable franchise in the league right now. They they don't have like a young whatever. They their season two. So you're out on way Luke Kennard? Out on Luke Kennard. I don't think he's the face of the franchise. They don't even have a top three pick. Blake's hurt. And if you're just saying what's the worst roster with the shakiest fan support combo, I would say Detroit. Yeah, no argument on that one. Um, but I would but you know what? Wait a minute. I mean, shouldn't we put Charlotte ahead of them? Only because if you're looking at it, like when Detroit's right, it's still probably better than what the Charlotte Hornets are. But Charlotte ha is a unique situation because Jordan bought that franchise basically for like five bucks and a 24 yeah. pack of Diet Coke. They gave him like the deal of all time. It, unbelievable. Yeah. And so, and he's, he cares about his legacy there. He's not going to move them and he's not going to sell the team. He likes, Yo. you know, he's, the, he's, first of all, he's their only black owner right now. And I think he has real significance behind the scenes now. And I, I just don't see them moving. I would say New Orleans has uh, Gail Benson, obviously, but, you know, they've invested in that franchise. They've invested in, um, they, they've invested in a GM. They spent money on a coach. They spent money on free agents last year. I don't, I don't think they've necessarily operated as a small market team, but I think there's some other ones. I, another one to me is Phoenix. You know, Phoenix is going to have a big check coming. And that's another one that's really struggled from attendance and season tickets the last couple of years. And it, it, when we were talking about what are teams that could make a splash, to me, that's a team that could potentially make a splash just because I don't think financially um, the team is generating that much revenue. Yeah. And when they're right, like I look at Phoenix as warmer Detroit, though, because when it's right, it's a pretty great fan base. And so that's right. why I just don't think, even though I'm with you about the excitement of the roster. Um, although there's, it's funny kind of going up to this more and more teams, just kicking the tires on Blake Griffin, but the contract is in such a position that any good team trying to add him is like, you know, we're kind of stuck. But I was talking to you right. last night was like, Hey, we actually like Blake. Like Me too. it's gone, it's gone so bad for Blake Griffin. Now that everybody's acting like it's horrible to have him on your team. And it's just not true. It's just a challenging trade. And of course the health part of it. But I think if you're going to mention Detroit to be fair to that fan base, that has a much better track record than Charlotte. Although if you want to go way back to like Larry Johnson and Zoe, those attacks 
attendance numbers for that Charlotte franchise were, were just destroyed everybody else. I think I remember them being like north of 21,000 for those games. But when you're a bad product, it's tough. My point, and I think it's a good one on the expansion thing, so let's just circle back to it before we get too derailed, is that if I'm the kind of guy that has, has access to that kind of cash that's always wanted one of these franchises, I don't know that I want to cut you a check. And even if it's, hey, you don't own the team until everything's normal, which feels like a huge assumption right now with where we're at, I wonder how many of these teams could become available. I think we could have a time where more teams become available in a very short window than we've had in a very long time coming out of the pandemic. Here's the flip side to that. You see these SPACs that have been being put together, right? Where people are putting together all kinds of investments. They raise like 400 million, 500 million with the intent to either buy smaller properties or buy pieces of sports teams. And that's one thing that I think at least the NBA has changed their opinion of before we just could it could somebody have minority stakes of multiple teams in the past? No way. And now they've kind of relaxed the rule on that. And technically you and I could form a SPAC and we could buy minority interests in, you know, the and Pistons and the Nuggets or whatever it is. Um, so they're relaxing rules on that. The thing with the SPACs though is the rules are kind of in place for people to put together a, a bunch of money and you could you could basically go after majority shares of teams or even minority shares of team for a cash influx. I think I think this stuff's like the wild, wild west right now. And if the NBA was like Seattle and Vegas are on the table, we want to get to this number. Who's interested? I think it would get exciting and interesting. And I, I think it's conceivable because again, this is the only way they replace that money. They could do a playing tournament. They could do hard alcohol. It's you're not getting close to replacing four and a half billion dollars. You're just not. Yeah. I mean, the the, the Jack Daniels sex swing parlay of the week. You know, just <laughs> <laughs> when I read that sentence, it's like they may go hard alcohol gambling casino. I was like, oh, okay, all right. But you're right, Bill. That number, and you know, I think it's at least worth bringing up too. If I'm Michelle Roberts, I'm I'm resisting some of the numbers that you're just flooding with um, everywhere. And you know, the NBA is going to say, hey, the numbers are the numbers, and this is what it is, and this is a a partnership. The way the NFL is a partnership, the way baseball is not a partnership with ownership and players, but. I'm always going to push back on it. I'm going to go, okay, fine. But then the, the counter to that, if I'm in the ownership side, I'd be like, okay, well, look, whatever. We we can argue by a decimal point or here or there. Do you think we're actually making more money? Do you think we're not losing billions? Because we're already down 10% based on last year's projection. So yeah. the, to go back to the beginning part, I'll ask you, do you think the players... I think we both agree they may not fully understand all this stuff because I'm not sure that I'm fully understanding of all of it, although you did a great job of laying it all out. I'm like 90%. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's good. There's still 10%. Right like, it's like, <laughs> so if they get expansion fees, I don't think they have to share that with the players, which is another fun wrinkle to this. Could I go just absolute anarchist, yeah. Michelle Roberts negotiating style, if Dude. I were in the room? Could you say, hey, when you make a profit selling these teams, <laughs> we don't see any of it. So right. why should you own the team so you have to deal with the operating losses. Now that goes completely against what the entire CBA is built on because it's again, back to that partnership, the 50-50 split. Remember, it used to be 57% for players and it's gotten whittled away every single time they went to the bargaining table. I, I don't know if the players understand the math. I think the players, because I just haven't heard enough from them. I don't know that they understand the magnitude of a force majeure here and what this new CBA would look like because I think the owners would really go for it then. 
because I think there is a bit of resentment that it feels like the players just kind of took the league over with everything going on this year. And look, we know how owners work. And I could see those guys getting in a room saying, okay, fine. They want to blow this up. They don't want to start in December. Okay, well, good luck enjoying this new CBA because we can play the longer game than you can. Or good luck not having a season. And we'll just take the hits and we'll write off a bunch of it from insurance and we'll blame the pandemic. And I don't know how much, like, for instance, the British Open, or not the British Open, the uh, Wimbledon. When the pandemic was happening, Wimbledon was like, cool, Wimbledon's canceled this year. And they cashed a giant insurance check. It was like 120 million or whatever it was because they they had made the arrangements. I don't know if if the NBA has stuff like that, but I do know like they're not going to play the season if the numbers are completely unfavorable, where it's like everybody's losing on the owner side. They're just not going to do it. Um, Have you heard there are owners that don't want to play this year? I'll be answering that question right after the break. This episode is brought to you by Taco Bell. If you're anything like me during a busy day at work, I need lunch that is just as fresh as it is delicious and easy. And the all new Cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell is exactly that. Made with high quality ingredients like seasoned slow roasted chicken, pico de gallo, shredded purple cabbage, and avocado verde salsa sauce. The new Cantina chicken tacos, burrito, and quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina chicken menu at Taco Bell now. This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is already stressful enough to deal with airports, delayed flights, bad weather. You want your actual where you're staying experience to be perfect, to be lights out. You don't want to have to worry about anything. When you book a vacation rental, you want to know exactly what you're paying ahead of time. The stress of getting hit with unexpected cleaning fees after your stay that can immediately cancel out all the great time you just spent unwinding. Thankfully, when you book with Verbo, you can see the total price upfront. There are no unpleasant surprises and the savings do not stop there, my friends. When you book with Verbo, you earn 2% cash back toward your next vacation through the One Key Rewards program, letting your money do the work for you while you've got your feet up. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your next private vacation rental in the Verbo app. All right, Rosillo asked me if I heard there were owners that did not want to play. I've not heard that yet, but I do wonder if we're headed toward, you know, like remember in the past when they had lockouts, you would have little clusters of owners would develop fighting different things, right? Like in when the whole lockout thing was happening in 2011, there was a small market side that was basically like, we have to have revenue sharing. I'm in Oklahoma City. I can't compete with these Laker guys. The irony was that Clay Bennett's like, I'm in Oklahoma City. I can't compete with the Lakers. It's like, well, you were in Seattle. You know, like the eighth biggest city in America. Maybe you should (laughs) stay there, you moron. Um, But they were doing that whole thing. So you had the cluster there. Then you had the, the, the big market owners who were like, wait a second. Why... Why do I have to share? You know, I paid more for my team. Why do I have to share profits with these guys? And Silver and Stern figured out how to massage it and make it cool. I don't know what happens this time if there's like three or four owners who are like, wait, so um, my team's not going to make the playoffs. Let's say let's say it's like, uh, who, ha- who has no chance of making the playoffs? Like Cleveland? Uh, pay, take your pick at the bottom of the East. Yeah, take your pick. We can talk about how bad the East is. Let's say Cleveland, let's say Dan Gilbert says, I'm not making the playoffs and I have no fans. I'm going to get crushed this year. I also have, I'm paying Kevin Love 31 million a year. I have all these things like, 
I, you know, I, if we don't have the season this year and I can write some stuff off, awesome. Sign me up for that. Like he, you might have somebody say that I have not heard though. Have you? Yeah, I think feel like I always hear it. I definitely heard it when baseball, when they wanted to restart. I mean, baseball's, I can't yeah. believe ownership allows some of this stuff to happen in baseball. When you have opening day rosters for the Cubs in 2019 at north of 210 million, and then the Rays are paying 50 million. Like, how are you even doing the same thing? Like, how yeah. how do you guys get to the, because you know all that revenue sharing. It makes me think like I should have bought the Rays 15 years ago. I should have figured out a way to do it. Be like, wait a minute, all the other owners of the luxury tax, they're going to just pay for my bills. Cool. Give me a team. Um, I've heard there's some. I've, I've heard there's some. And I think it has more to do with the long term wanting to restructure what the CBA looks like. Because I do think well, that there's there's I, I think there's just a resentment that it's like, wait, where are we at right now? Like, do you guys just not want to play? Like, yeah. If you don't want to play, then fine. We won't play. And then we'll see what it looks like when we all come back. And I, and I do, I'm going to ask you it this way. And maybe it's fair, maybe it's unfair. But I feel like the more recent culture of NBA players has been a culture of not really wanting to play games. We've de-emphasized so much of the regular season. We had all of the load management stuff, the resting thing, and then the NBA stepping in saying, hey, do you guys mind not sitting all of your best players on the Thursday night TNT games or the Saturday night ESPN games? You're talking body uh, preservation. Right. I mean, it was just so, but it was also really bad. Like, it, it was bad for your partner because there were plenty of games you could go in there and be like, well, why did you play the Friday game in Minnesota that was on a regional network? And then at the Saturday primetime, you couldn't because it was in the back-to-back. -back. Like, do a better job being a better business partner. And I don't think the players care because the players are like, look, whatever. I've signed for $25 million. I get my check. I don't care. So when I Well, when wait, I hear on, that, on that side, though, the flip side of that is I think the owners did a bad job of making it easier on the players, just the rigors of the travel schedule. And I think they really learned something from the bubble. And I, that's something I've heard over and over again. I'm sure you have too. Whatever version of the season we have, they're completely changing their strategy with travel. The Lakers go to Denver and, they, and they're at Denver two times during the season. They're playing both of those games in Denver when they're there. They'll play their Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, whatever it is. They're not going to go back twice. And I think they're going to condense things like that. So if, you know, I don't know how many road games you'd have in a 72 game season. Maybe it's 36, but I don't know how many times you'd play. I guess you'd play one and a half times in your conference, one time in the other conference. Um, I think they would make it so that let as, as little trips as possible, basically. Okay. So in the old days, it's 36 trips. Now maybe it's 28, 27, something like that. All right, but there's also like a part of it that where it's competitive where you go, okay, so if you play Denver, you play in that weekend and then you never see him again the rest of the regular season and you're in the West. Like, that seems weird. Like, I like Well, the, the other idea piece of, of that is like, let's say that's the week LeBron pulled his calf. Exactly. And you have to play at Denver Friday, Sunday, no LeBron either game. That's, that's why they haven't done it that way. But I think they're going to say, well, it's, you're losing either way. So let's lose this way. And, and the players over and over again, the feedback they got were from the guys in the bubble was that the no travel really helped us. Well, no and, shit, but it's and not I, testing you know, for pot really helped us. Right. <laughs> like honestly, those were the two, those are the two big takeaways from the bubble. But this is the biggest point that I'm going to make on this entire thing until we get to some of the off season stuff is I'd like to hear from more players because the league has become LeBron's voice. 
Yeah. And as much as I've gotten in trouble with this before, I'm going to do it again. And that is that I think people can be inherently selfish about a lot of the decisions they make. Not saying every single decision you make is selfish, but when it comes to work, I don't care who you are or what your job is, you're going to find a way to complain about it. And when you're a superstar, you kind of you almost like complaining about it a little bit more. So for LeBron, yes, this is an incredibly quick turnaround. All right. He just won a title weeks ago. He's made, you know, I don't know if it's over a billion dollars total with everything all calculated. Uh, and to jump back into it at Christmas for him feels kind of ridiculous. Would you hear thing- what he said in the on the shop on Friday? He was saying like, because Danny Green had mentioned on a Ringer podcast that he thought LeBron would take the first month off. And I think Obama asked LeBron about that. LeBron's like, yeah, I'll just have Anthony Davis carry us for that first month and come back. That if I would be scared if I was him to do that physically at age heading into my age thirty six season with seventeen years to do another condensed season when I'm trying to extend as much as I can I I I'm gonna push back on one thing you said I think the reason we haven't heard the players be as vocal about this is I think they had to get through the election I think a lot of them were using their capital socially and in a whole bunch of other ways to push the voting initiatives things like that I think when we get to Thursday as we get to 24 hours away from this is, could be a force majeure situation. I think that's when the players, that's why I want to do this podcast now, because over these next three days, I think so much is going to change and we're going to hear voices and we're going to hear arguments. You asked about, you know, what owners have come out and said, fuck this, let's not do it. I think we'll probably hear who a couple of those guys are by like Thursday, right? Well, the ownership is tough, though, because anytime you speak out on like anything CBA related, you get fined. I mean, you just get absolutely hammered for it. So I don't know how vocal those guys have done a really good job of being aligned. But, you know, back to the the league thing. Yeah. But back back to the LeBron part of this, I understand LeBron's concerns for LeBron. But there's hundreds of players that haven't played since March. I haven't played a game since March. There are hundreds of players that are mid to lower class on the NBA pay scale that are still worried about all the different people they're supporting. And we can get on their case for like living beyond, but whatever, like you're a millionaire, you buy a nice house, you probably have mortgage payments. You're worried about all this stuff. Maybe you're taking care of some other people in your family. And I understand with everything that's going on with the election, it being the priority, but I'm still surprised. It's not like you can only talk about the election. If you're a public figure, you could certainly mention some of these other things. And it feels like everybody looks at LeBron and goes, man, that's a really quick turn. It is for LeBron and Jared Dudley, who we love, who came on this podcast was incredible and said, Hey, don't get mad if they start this and we start sitting out big games. Okay. But that's you guys who just went on this run. More than half the league hasn't played since March. I would imagine, and it and it went to the same thing on the restart vote, where I was like, wait, do guys not want to come back and play? Oh, wait, it was like 400 players voted to come back to play? Okay, where are all of these guys? Because that, you would think, is the more important part of it, but as we know, history with this league, especially going back to the 90s, where it was David Falk and those superstars, maybe the superstars should always run the league. Maybe it should only be LeBron's voice. I guess it just really surprised me, because if I were a decent player making less than $10 million, who's on a team that sucked, I'd be like, look, we want to salvage 21-22. I I want to figure this out, and I want to come back and play basketball. I'm I'm sorry if some of the teams that went deep in the playoffs are going to be tired in December and January. I guess I the only thing I would add to that is all of this is happening so fast. Like, even I was having trouble processing it until the last 48 hours, and I did like a big, you know, I talked to some people, did a big deep dive this morning, just like trying to understand all the facts. I think this is the week when people are going to really 
start to put the the jigsaw puzzle together. Because think about it, like two weeks ago was when we started talking about on this podcast, actually about, hey, they might come back on Christmas. And now they've just been trying to figure out how to do that. I think we're headed toward a stalemate and somebody's going to have to give. And I don't know how it plays out. I really don't. I'm I'm concerned. And I think there is a chance, you know, I don't think a 50-game season makes sense for the owners. Because now you're losing even more money, you know? And I, I'm not saying I'm rooting against that. I'm just saying at some point there's there's you've removed financial incentive to play the season for the people that own the franchises. And that's the part that concerns me if I don't want to lose a basketball season. I don't think anybody does. If the players, if, if the majority of the players said, hey, we're cool with losing money. We just want the extra rest. We want to play the 50 games, which any, anything that happens here, Bill, we both understand has to allow the following season to line up right. Whether yeah. it's the end of this season and how bad the ratings were. But again, we had playoff games in October going up against NFL Sunday. So it's not a shock that some of those NBA ratings were terrible. And they definitely don't want to do that again. And the election this, didn't help either. Right. But the election, I mean, politics the, all the election general, coverage. Politics in general have been destroying daytime cable and sports for years now. Like yeah. even when I was back at ESPN, I remember looking at some of our dailies and it wasn't even like I was a simulcast show, but we expected a certain number. And then after a while, I'm like, what the, what is going on with our TV number? And you'd have right. executives go look at all the ESPN and ESPN two lineup shows here in our midday. They're like crushed. We were getting crushed because of the guy that's in office. Yeah. Um, we're going to take one more break, come back and do some draft stuff. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is brought to you by Honey Stinger. This is a show about sports and culture opinions, but right now I want to talk sports facts, the data, the stats. Honey Stinger, sports nutrition, trusted by more than 1,500 pro and college teams. That's right, 1,500. That's all 32 pro football teams. That's 39 pro basketball teams, 29 pro baseball teams, and more that prepare, perform, and recover with the delicious taste of Honey Stinger's energy waffles, chews, gels, and bars. Honey Stinger is the one team's trust. Use code Simmons for 20% off your first order at honeystinger.com. That is S-I-M-M-O-N-S for 20% off your first order at honeystinger.com. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Unlike this podcast, some things in life should be boring, like banking, because boring is pragmatic and responsible, level-headed, wise, all the things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be exciting, Exciting is for three-point buzzer beaters, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money because when your money is doing what you need it to, you can do all the unboring things you want to do with it. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc., PNC Bank National Association. Member FDIC. Okay, so draft, we think is uh, a couple weeks away here now, two weeks away, <laughs> two weeks away Thursday, we think. Can and I can I share with you what I, what, can I share on the podcast what I shared with you today? Share because whatever you want. Knock yourself a, out. Because there was a couple um, teams that I've been talking to and they were worried the draft was going to get pushed back, which, you know, most people think it's still going to be in the 18th, it'll be fine. But one one team was like, 
if this draft does get pushed back with the way Tyrell Terry's being talked about by Simmons, he'll be in the top five by next year. <laughs> I'm trying so to get stock on. <laughs> yeah, they, they were they were single-handedly saying that you're the longer it goes before the draft happens, the way you've been talking about Terry, you'd have him as a top five pick in a couple months. So go ahead. Big mistake. I should have talked about how terrible I thought he was. So he fell to 14 if I had that kind of power, which I don't. But uh yeah, I mean, we have we have a top three of Minnesota, then Golden State, and then Charlotte. Nobody knows who the number one pick is. LaMelo seems like this artificial stock that's just being propped up by a couple people that now everybody's kind of do, running the financials on and be like, hey, wait a second. I thought you said this generated $90 million in revenue a year. I'm seeing that it's minus $90 million. I, It seems like he has a chance to free fall out of there. What are you, what are you hearing about this? I'm just trying to... What was it? What was it Sopranos? Or like, I told you to push whippistics. <laughs> <laughs> I think some teams straight up think he sucks. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not think. I mean, I've I've heard it. And I was like, look, I don't know. I don't know how anybody watches the Australian stuff and goes, I'm in. I love this. This is great. Uh he has a lower floor than people realize. Now, if you're going to sit there in a room and say, hey, he's 6'8", he can really see the floor, we can fix his shot in this draft, all right, you know, like, I'll listen. I'll listen. I don't want to put a ton of stock in. I don't want Australia, like, con- to single-handedly, like, convince me that he sucks. But some teams are are looking at it, and it's just, you know, the more time you get with it, the way it was explained to me the other day was, your stock analogy is perfect. It's like, he's been put in these scenarios to just take a million shots and have massive production. And he's just not great at playing basketball right now, as far as understanding it. The physical it reminds part, me a little it, of when Philly tried to win rookie of the year from Michael Carter Williams during the first year of the process. And the whole offense revolved around him and he's putting up a couple triple doubles and people are like, Oh, this is interesting. And if you're actually watching it, you're like, wait a second, this guy can't really shoot. Uh, he has the ball an incredible amount. And if you were actually trying to win a playoff series, this guy would not be the guy you were uh, feeding every time. The LaMelo thing, there's so many red flags. I can't imagine how you take him in the top top three, much less top five, because on top of it, you know, there's, there's, how many times do we see have to see this over and over again, where the guys that actually make it in the league are just like gym rat slash fucking badass dudes who from a personality standpoint um, are just home runs. And over and over again, you see it. And you see like somebody like Donovan Mitchell, he drops to 13, huge chip on his shoulder. He's going to prove everyone wrong. He's been proving everyone wrong ever since he was at Greenwich Country Day. I, the Lamella thing's kind of the opposite of that. He's been completely catered to by his family. He's been artificially propped up higher than maybe he should have been for the last couple of years. And then he goes to Australia and it's basically like he's the son's coach on the Little League team who gets to just pitch every game and bat cleanup and everybody talks about how great Timmy is. I would be terrified to take him. Not to mention that that's the deepest position in the league. I he, I don't want to take a point guard in the top five unless I know he's a home run. I've said this before too. And, you know, I remember asking the Lakers about it. I was like, hey, how's how the, the LeVar thing's probably a little like overrated, right? And they're like, no, it sucks. So, like it sucks. Like it sucks to deal with. So I don't know if he's back on first take, walking in like Conor McGregor and going, all right, Lamelo's winning MVP and all the bullshit that you know none of us should have paid much attention to it as as before. But you know, 
Lonzo was a better basketball player than LaMelo was at this stage. Lonzo did some really special things. And LaMelo's just taller. Yeah. Not as good. And I'd ask you, like, what if LaMelo were Lonzo? Where would you take him in this draft? Well, he's, he was, he's like a taller Lonzo, right? Yeah. Right. And Lonzo was good this year. And then I don't know what the hell happened in the time off because he was one of the worst players out there during the bubble. Yeah, I'm gonna was, I, I'm not giving up on him, but the bubble I'm, was I'm with he, you. bubble was so bad for him. I'm with you. It was bad, but the regular season was good. The regular season yeah. was like, oh wait, things are looking a little bit better here. We're talking about his improved shot. If Lamella were as good as Lonzo was during the regular part of the regular season, I actually think you have a nice player, like a decent player there. And that's the weird thing about this draft is um, I think it is a two-man race at this time between Edwards and Wiseman. I, I'll leave myself an allowance that there could be a third guy to get into that top three, but I'd be surprised if at four, Wiseman and Edwards are still available. That would actually be shocking, certainly with Edwards, too. We've made some cool ringer videos on some of these guys. Edwards is just, that's one. I don't think there's anybody who says, I know how this is going to play out as lying. Because you watch some of those clips and you think, that guy looks like Dwayne Wade. If Dwayne Wade came back from a time machine in 2003 and, you know, was a better three-point shooter in 2020, like there's some Wade-ish elements to him. And he can also be really pretty easily picked apart. I I really do like the guys more in that 6 to 13 range where, you know, maybe the ceiling isn't as high, but I know what I'm getting. You know I love Halliburton. Uh, you know I love Terrell Terry. Those are the guys to me. I just, I, this is one of those drafts where I just want to go with, do you have a skill that translates to the basketball I just watched in the bubble? Are you an awesome rebounder? Are you a good rim runner? Do you have three-point range? Are you a really smart guard who can kind of fit in in any situation? And like Halliburton for the, for the Warriors, which it's too high to take him at two. But I do feel like if you put him on that team, he could play with those guys. You know, and he could bring an interesting wrinkle to them where it's like now Curry doesn't have to handle the ball quite as much and you can play him off and could do these different things. And the same thing with Terrell Terry, who they're not going to take either. Um, you know, that's another shooter. Put the guy in the fucking corner and, and that's it. Now I have to worry about three shooters when I'm out there. So when I see them at two, I, don't, I just don't think the top three makes sense for them. They could take Edwards and, and cross their fingers, but if they miss on that, they're basically blowing this one unbelievable chance to extend their contendership, f make it a 12-year run instead of a seven-year run, right? They can't miss the pick. They're the team that can't miss. They have to get somebody who can play 30 minutes a game in a playoff game. Maybe this year. Could they miss the pick, though, and still be really good? Like, they can end up with a guy that totally doesn't work out. They're still going to be Could good. be really good for a couple of years, but not long-term. This is this is their James Worthy moment. Yeah. You know, like, when the Lakers were able to refuel with Worthy in 82, and then Jamal Wilkes gets old by 84, and they have this awesome future Hall of Famer to just plug in with speed and athleticism. It's what the Celtics lost with bias. And I don't, I don't think anybody in this draft is as good as either of those guys. But you think about the ability for a contender to refuel is really rare. It's it's one of the rarest draft things you can have. So I, th I thought you were going to go with how Matt Geiger allowed the Sixers to transition into Theo Ratliff, but Matt Geiger allowed the Sixers to keep Allen Iverson in the summer of two thousand because if he did, if he waived his trade ticker kicker, they would have traded him to Detroit. It's a great what if. Trade was done. 
it was it was a wrap. Eddie Jones was going to Philly. Stackhouse was going to Charlotte. The Lakers were getting like Anthony Mason and Kukoc. And uh, Matt Geiger would not waive his trade kicker. There you go. I love that. You were on it. It's good. Great. 1.2 million a year. It's like, no, thanks. That was when you were at your peak. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Early 2000s. I was, re- I was really thriving back then. So what do you think the Warriors do? Do they stay or they trade down or they trade the pick? I'd be, they do? I, w- I was told last night it'd be shocking to see them stay at two. So it feels like Edwards, but I don't know who's going one. You know, I think the Charlotte stuff that KOC had that you guys talked about last week on the podcast, um, you know, you don't need my help to check anybody's math, but I, I think that that's a, a thing that's talked about. Um, I don't think LaMelo, I, how about this first take theory for you? Hmm. Would Jordan not draft LaMelo third because his father said that he would beat him on first take one-on-one? 100% he wouldn't draft him because of that. Yeah. No, I think Jordan's that crazy. Um, but they also don't need a point guard. No, they have, they have actually, that's the one part of that roster that's actually worked out a little bit here. And, and Charlotte, despite not liking that roster, the, the job Coach Borrego's done with that team has, has been incredible as far as how competitive they were in games that, you know, they ended up losing all the time. But uh, I, don't, I think Golden State would like to move back, pick up a piece, whether it's a player or another pick, and then take somebody else. And the Halliburton thing, he can play off. He can. I mean, he did it his freshman year where it confused the other guards that were bigger scorers, but he was he was more than happy to facilitate for them. He didn't want to take a ton of shots. His shot's a little weird. It looks like an old guy that's had injuries because it's like this set shot, and he doesn't jump at all on it. But I think he goes he in. It. it goes in. He hits it a really good number. And what I do like about him is, you know, Stephen Clay can actually play off of the ball. If if you try to do this with James Harden, where you're like, hey, you're going to watch and I'm going to do stuff or Westbrook, and they'd be like, wait a minute, or even with Lillard, like Lillard is amazing, but Lillard needs to have the ball. And Halliburton could, in theory, a three, two seems two's too high for Halliburton, but he does a lot of stuff off the ball that I really like. Like he'll cut through, he'll he'll set back screens and he'll come back and he'll, he'll get it and then he'll initiate the offense and he has some floaters. Like he's not going to cross you up like Derrick Rose and that kind of stuff, but he's a really smart player, but I just don't know. And he's know a high IQ State. guy. The high yeah. IQ thing for that team, I think is even more important. Yeah, I just don't putting know. somebody in who just kind of gets it. Yeah. What is the deal though? Because all I've heard so far are bad Golden State offers. Like every time I'll hear it, I'll go, eh. Like I think yeah, the but Knicks then, like, would move so up. Let's say they liked Halliburton or let's say they liked whoever, somebody that they could get three to seven picks later. Okay. They could just go backwards, you know, to five with Cleveland, get flip picks with them, pick up something. I don't know if they'd want to pick up another salary, but it could be uh that could be a good Larry Nance Jr. spot for them. Take a flyer on him for two years to twelve million. You can fit him in your trade exception. Maybe get some sort of like very, very, very protected pick swap for later years. Your guy, uh, Seti Esmond. Chetty? Chetty. Your guy, Chetty. Maybe Chetty. he's in there. Who knows? And if you're... You can't get rid of him, man. Are you kidding me? Well, and if you're the Cavs, you move up to two and you take a crack at Wiseman because you already have two guards. Um, that does it not make sense. Detroit's another one. I had floated on Zach's podcast a couple weeks ago, a deal with Wiggins and Blake and flopping seven for two and something else. I, I don't know if the Warriors would roll the dice with Blake. Probably not. It's probably risky. I think it's a great risk. Uh, if you read the offseason stuff with him, it seems like his knees are in pretty good shape. You're only carrying that contract for two years, second year's and expiring. So that's a chance to maybe flip that wig. I saw asset. him not that long ago. He looks great. 
Hmm. Yeah. Do you so like just, at a white party? Everybody dressed in white, Manhattan Beach, <laughs> t-shirts and white pants. One of those. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Um, so, what do you do if you're Minnesota? What do you want? What's your dream scenario? Not this draft. It's such but a it's bummer. Not, it's not Beal. Like nobody thinks. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say nobody because it's not like I talk to every single person. Um. The Beal momentum as of now doesn't feel very good. And we can, I want to, we have to do this about the East because it feels like all these bad East teams think they're one tweak away. And, um, you know, Beal just keeps getting brought up over and over and over again. Like, who are the middling players that are available that make you better that somebody else wants to give up on? And unless it's a team that just completely falls in love with a Wiseman or an Edwards and, and then likes the idea that they're cheaper than the player that's going out. But, well, we were talking about that with Atlanta, who's, I think, at six and has made no bones about being honest about they'd love to get a veteran. They'd love to get a proven guy. They'd want to compete for a playoff spot next year if there's a season. And KOC had that idea of trading six for 11 and DeRozan. But you look at like those bigger salary guys that they could get, it's, it's not a long list. It's like Gordon Hayward. It's DeRozan. It's LaMarcus Aldridge for one year. It's Harrison Barnes. Uh, it's Otto Porter, you know, it's, it's pretty slim pickings for those guys in that buddy healed. Maybe it's slim, slim pickings for guys in that, uh, kind of 22 to $27 million salary range. So I don't know. Could Atlanta try to flip picks with golden state? I don't know why they would, because I don't, I don't think that helps them compete with the playoffs. Then you go seven Detroit. Detroit's the one that needs, that's the most desperate team. I think because just whoever they just stay at seven and take, it's not, it's still not a good situation. They could actually use that pick to try to patch together a bunch of assets. That's why I was hoping the Celtics might trade up into that spot. So let me throw it to you this way, because this is the best way I've had it explained to me of anybody. Cause I was like, look, where, how, where are the names? I'm like, who, who's actually available? You know, like what's hmm. going on? Now I've heard Gordon Hayward does one out, but I don't know if he's going to get the money. He's not opting out of that huge number unless he knows he's getting the deal. So that could be an Atlanta solution, even though it doesn't make a ton of sense. But I could also understand Atlanta saying, hey, whatever. We didn't have to give up anything. We used all this cap space. We'll figure out which young players we want to play. But does Gordon Hayward not like the current situation in Boston enough to then want to go ahead and play with Trey Young and watch him shoot a million well, times? Well, wait, hold that know. thought, though, because people would think it's crazy for him to opt out of a $34 million deal. But here's the thing. If the salary cap is going way back next year, and he could figure out some deal where he gets like four for 78, right? And it's like 20 million, 19 million, 18 million, 17 million. It's like, oh my God, you took a $14 million pay cut. Well, actually you didn't because that 34 million you were making this year, it's already going to be less money if it's a 72 game season. If it's a 50 game season or they do that 40% escrow thing, it's even less. You're, you care more about the season after locking down some contract when there's going to be less cap space, more people in the space, and suddenly it's unrealistic you could get $20 million. So there, there's some sort of math version of it that it actually might make sense. And by the way, that would screw the Celtics if he opted out because well, they, should they, be worried they would about much it. rather have him as an expiring contract slash hope that he's good this year guy versus you just lose the asset. Exactly. I mean, it's a problem and they should be worried about it, but it really comes down to like, hey, what what does he know that's already going to be available? Because I don't know what I believed. I actually think you were very early on this. I don't know if you shared it with a ton of people, but it was just kind of you and I talking about like, hey, what are you hearing on Hayward? Because one of my pushbacks to, well, he can get go ahead 
and do more guaranteed money now than what the one year at 34 million is for him. And I was like, one of the things I always say to that is, let's not freak out and act like he's going to get $0 offered to him at the end of this contract. But because of what you just said, with whatever you're trying to figure out, and if the cap is artificially at 109, then it might make the most sense for him, especially with all the injury history. But that means that he'll have wanted out of Boston bad enough to go to a bad team that has the cap space, which I think sometimes when that's brought up, it's like, wait a minute, why would he want to go ahead and do that? But I think Gordon Hayward's sick of having moments where he's looking around going, I'm the fifth option right now for shooting. Yeah. And, and he f- probably feels a little snake bit with how it's gone the first three years. Yeah. And I'm not even blaming the other guys for being like, dude, you're hurt all the time. And even yeah. when you're back, you're not even back all the way. So yeah, sorry. Like we're not getting it to you a ton, but that's something Boston again, like what are the, what's Gordon Hayward supposed to do? Do them the favor, not opt out so that he can be a trade asset later on and get traded to a team he wants to go to even less than a free agent team he signed with. So, you know, look in this one, everybody should just do whatever they want. He could opt out. They could sign him to a new deal as a sign and trade, I think, and trade him to Indiana for Turner. And maybe Why that's do you how want this Turner plays out. so bad. Cause I think they need to get an asset for Hayward. They can't just let him leave and nothing happens. Cause they don't, they're not going to have enough cap space to get an impact guy. They're still too high. Yeah. So to just lose him for nothing is a disaster for them. Um, but, okay. Um, so back, let's go back to the East though, just because this is important yeah, let's, to understand. Let's finish up on this. Go through all how bad the East is. So as I was asking about, Hey, give me names. Give me who the names are of the people that are being thrown around. That's one of the main things I ask everybody that I talk to. And I was like, why, why aren't there any names? Why aren't there any names? And a Western Conference team was, was brilliant about this. I mean, obviously, this isn't genius-level stuff. It made a ton of sense. And it was like, hey, look, if you play in the West, when you play the bad teams, you still have to bring it. Because Minnesota's got two good players. The Pelicans are a good team, even though the record's bad. Sacramento has three really good players, and that's not including Bagley because nobody knows what the hell's going on. The Spurs are still competitive enough. Phoenix is, is good. Like, Memphis didn't make the playoffs, technically, um, based on standings, obviously. And Memphis has has two maybe young studs. Now look at the bottom of the East. Now the top of the East is stronger now with options than we've had in recent years, which is nice. That depth of the top of the East is like, hey, wait. But the bottom is, is so bad. Cleveland's yeah. terrible. Atlanta was the second worst team record-wise in the East. And I keep hearing stuff like if they don't make the playoffs, that there's a mandate down there that all sorts of things are going to change, which would also lead me to believe they offer Hayward whatever they want just to be able to say they did something. Detroit's terrible. The Knicks suck. The Bulls are sneaky, like could go either way where it's, hey, 35 wins, something's really happening here. Or, oh, man, none of these players are any good. The Wizards, you know, even getting Wall back, and I'd heard that they're on Wiseman. And that they like them, but I mean, they should be a playoff team if they're healthy, but who are they beating? We've been over Charlotte. The fact that Charlotte's better win percentage-wise than all those other teams is a credit to them being competitive. Orlando still isn't healthy. So the top seven all feel pretty good, but the bottom of the East, like, it's awful. It's awful, but... You mentioned Orlando, and it's like, Orlando could suck next year. They could, They're kind of at the crossroads of what they are as a team. I know the Bulls man- management and coaching staff thing there is new, but it's it's still this young, unknown roster. The Knicks, it, I mean, it's, it's new with Leon and, and Thibodeau in there. But there's a lot of teams, the way it was explained is that there's more buyers now than you normally would have. Mm. Because it's a lot of guys either looking to save their job, have some sort of artificial improvement to the roster just by doing some kind of transaction that most of these teams, again, these guys haven't got to do their job now in well over a year. 
normally you should be able to pick somebody off from these bad teams that know they suck. But a lot of these teams think that they're just like this close, a little tweak away from maybe making the playoffs. And that's why we have kind of a weird lack of names in the trade market. Does that make sense? Well, and then you have teams that should be the names in the trade market, like Washington, who should say who should be saying, let's get as much for Beal as we can get. There's so many teams trying to acquire a big, a big guy. We actually have one. And ultimately, it's too risky by the time we're half decent again, he could leave. And Washington's like, no, no, we're keeping him. So that guy, he's just off the market. And then you have, I, I think part of the reason we don't have the right names is just because the salaries got too high, which we've talked about in previous podcasts. Where Kevin Love, if he's making 18 million a year, you could talk yourself into that pretty fast. When he's at 30, you 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 pause and you you don't want to do it. And that's a name like, oh, that would be fun if Atlanta could get Kevin Love. They're not going to take that risk and they're not going to add another subpar defensive player of their team. But I think so many of those plus 25 million salaries are so intimidating. Harrison Barnes making 24 million. You know, you go down the line, it's like, all right, let's go get Lowry. Toronto's having a fire sale. He's making like 33 or whatever it is. It's just really hard to pull off trades. I think it's the hardest it's been in a while on top of all the financial concerns. And nobody wants to go in the tax. Nobody. I, I, you you might see three people in the tax next year. And then even the Knicks, who normally are ready to do anything dumb, actually seem like they're, they're developed some sort of a plan and, you know, maybe not go too crazy. So if you're just looking at teams that are desperate out of the contenders, it's really Milwaukee in the East. Philly will wait a year. They, they bought a year with Daryl. Um, it's Milwaukee in the East. I don't see anyone in the West. I don't, I don't think one contender is like, we got to make a move. I think everybody's going to be pretty careful. Don't you think? Oh, totally. Um, now, that's why I think... Phoenix Oklahoma, is maybe a little... There's a little desperation to Well, desperation be to good. add. Desperation yeah, to, be good. to add to it, but they got to worry about the Booker thing because the, the, the worst kept secret in the league is Booker already wants out of there. And if it's another bad season, I actually think that could get ugly. But this is why Oklahoma City is actually aligned pretty well here. I mean, think about this. They still ended up with the fifth best record and tied actually with Houston, but then obviously was was the five seed as opposed to Houston being the four seed. I've been told that that Paul is going to be um, like they're not going to just send Chris Paul somewhere that sucks and screw right. over Chris Paul. He'll have he's some in, sort of say. He'll have some, exactly. But think of how valuable Chris Paul is on the trade market right now. We've mentioned that there's an, it, the, the pie chart of buyers versus sellers is so heavily weighted towards buyers because you have bad teams that all think they're buyers because they think they're this close. And I'm not saying Chris Paul is going to end up on one of those, but when, if we don't have enough of a market of potential trade you know, candidates as far as players, if we know Paul is going to be traded and he's still really good and it's only two years left and I know it's a monster number and that might get back to your original point of like, okay, but how many places could he actually land? I don't know if we start doing three teamers here and moving stuff around and somebody's taking on somebody else's contract with their own cap space, although there's just not a ton of cap space out there. I think Paul, it's funny, Paul goes from a, a bit of a dump for another massive contract in Westbrook. It wasn't now, a bit of a dump. They had to throw in two first rounders. That was a dump. <laughs> Think about that. You had to give up two first rounders to take on Westbrook's contract with the extra year. Well, now we know what happened, though. 
we should have known what happened who, ahead of time. Who says no if if uh, you call, you get the Utah GM and the Atlanta GM on the line together and you say, hey guys, I thought of a trade. Capella and Atlanta's six for Utah's pick and go bear. You guys figure it out. I'm going to hang up now. Uh... I think I need a little bit more if I'm Utah, even though I'm scared to death. Really, you're getting the six pick. You're getting the six pick at Capella. Do I have to remind? Do I have to send you a link to this draft again? I think I would do it. I'd try to get out of Gobert. I'm worried about paying Gobert. I, I absolutely, and it's it's just because he's not. I mean, look at that Denver series. If one more, you're like, can I max him now? Can I max him at halftime? And then at the end of another game, you go, oh, wait, this is why I'm freaked out about this. And I worry about Capella without Harden. Mm. No? I like the I like the thought of him on Utah. Just everybody with, running around, not asking yeah, for post-ups? Yeah, and some, some rim runs, stuff like that. Um, all right. Rosillo's podcast you can listen to. Can I ask called, you one question? Yeah. If Tyler Hero's in this draft, how many players are you taking ahead of him? Knowing what we know now yes. or last year's version? No, no, no. You can't. No. I'd say knowing what you know now. I think he's the number one pick. <laughs> I think you're right. I don't think it's crazy. I don't think it's crazy. Well, here, here's how we know. Golden State calls Miami right now and says, I'll give you the number two pick for Tyler Hero. What does Miami say? They hang up. What does Minnesota say if my, if, or what Minnesota calls Miami and says, number one pick for Hero, let's just call it in the league. What does Miami do? I think they hang up. That's how sad this draft is. Or how amazing Tyler Hero is. <laughs> Maybe it's a little <laughs> both. Well, same thing with Wendell Carter, right? I think a guy both of us like who has not, he's had some injuries. Um, they didn't use him the right way at all. They didn't I use mean, him he's the right had way. injuries, but they're not. It's almost like they're trying to fuck him up. There's a real case that he might be good. And if they called Golden State and said, "We'll give you Wendell Carter for the number two pick," I actually think Golden State would have to do that because I'd like him more than anyone in this draft. And if they called Minnesota and said the same thing, I think I would do that if I was Minnesota. I That's where I'd where like I may him back. more than anyone in this draft. I might push back. I think I'd like to see a little bit more of the Duke Wendell Carter at the NBA level before I'm ready to give the number one pick for him. Because the other argument would be is there's still going to be somebody from this draft. I mean, I don't think we're going to have a repeat of 20 years ago. There's a good chance like a couple guys would be pretty good. and But they're probably going to be not top three guys. It's going to end up being like that 2013 draft where 10... 13 and 15 were like the key picks, right? Yeah, yeah. And we've had drafts like that recently. All right, listen to Rosillo on the uh, Ryan Rosillo podcast, and I'm sure we'll check in. I'll either be on your podcast or you'll be on mine before the draft, which hopefully happens. Are we doing a, la a live show for the first round or whatever? And then I think we are, assuming the draft happens, yeah. But uh, I'll probably see you before then. Good to see you as always. All right, thanks, Bill. Hey, not that long ago, going out with friends was a little too complicated. Used to worry about where you'd go, what you'd look like, who you'd invite. Now, getting together for a beer with your closest friends, not that complicated. These days, it actually feels more like you should. Be yourself with your friends, hop on a Zoom, do a little distance thing. Maybe maybe that's the way it always should have been. As the original light beer, Miller Lite has always believed this. That's what Miller time is all about. As you know, you've heard me talk about this. Miller Lite, my favorite beer dating back to uh, the late 80s. 
<laughs> it's it's just always been in my life. They even got involved with athletes, had some cool posters. Whether you're toasting in person or you're cheersing from afar, Miller Lite has always been about bringing you and your friends together for Miller Time. Miller Lite, great taste with only 96 calories and 3.2 carbs. However you and your friends are enjoying Miller Time, you can have the original light beer delivered by going to MillerLite.com forward slash BS and find the delivery options near you. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories and 3.2 carbs per 12 ounces. All right, we're taping this at one o'clock Pacific time on election night. So this might be the last time Wesley Morris is happy for months and months on end. I, I didn't want to go there. We wanted to talk about movies and TV shows because when we get through this election, assuming it turns out favorably for a lot of people and they move away from it and they're like, you know what? It's time for me to start catching up on some stuff. And there's been a lot of interesting stuff that's come out. Wesley Morris, my former Grantland colleague, Pulitzer Prize winner now of the New York Times, including one of my favorite TV shows of the last 10 years. And in my opinion, the best limited TV series I've ever seen. The Queen's, Gamb the Queen's Gambit on Netflix. It fucking took the championship belt for me. What did you think of that show? Hold on. What's, what gets my championship belt? Yeah. So here are the nominees. Okay. So you think going way, way back. So it's a mini series, uh, right? I so, went straight back to V. That's how far back I went. <laughs> right. So you have to do that. You have to do, uh, what, what was the one that the battle, the HBO battle generation kill the corner, oh, yeah. the, the corners. corners one. Um, then you go this decade, the night of you do big little lies. You have all the British shows. What was that show with the guy from game of Thrones where he's, He's trying to find a terrorist. That show was really good, whatever that show is called. Nikolai Coster Waldau or whatever. No, no, no. The, the guy, my God, the guy who died in season one or season two. The guy I who mean, died in the Red Wedding, the son. Everybody died in the Red Wedding. Uh, I don't know. People are like, well, that whatever. show. Whatever. Yeah, that show. You know, what people <laughs> out there know. I thought this was the best seven episode show I've ever seen. If you want it, okay. This is a very good distinction among the the weight belts. So there's the heavyweight, there's the welterweight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, seven episodes, I got to think about what a seven episode miniseries, limited series is. But I mean, Watchmen for me is is a high watermark. It, How many is, episodes was that? I believe, I want to say eight or nine. Oh, um, I, I thought that was 10. Yeah, right. Maybe. Watch what, so what so it's Watchmen's in there too then. For me, I mean, I don't want to No, for me you. too. Okay. Damn it. Yeah, I no, know. Now I, I have mean, to think about this some more. I don't like I don't like this show better than Watchmen. I do not. But okay. I do think you do you want to tell me how you got me to watch it? So I'll tell you how I got to watch it. Friday night, looking for anything to watch, stuck in the house for the 199th straight day or whatever it is. And just flicking through and they show those little previews on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And I remember somebody wrote in the ringer about it and I heard a little buzz, but I watched a preview of, of the little girl trying to enter the chess tournament. I've always loved chess. I'm a searching Bobby Fisher guy. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> you sigh, you sigh. No, no, I, I, I remember. I'm like, what's this? And we just cut my wife and I and my daughter, we just kind of rolled the dice and uh -huh. five hours later, still watching. It was like midnight. I'm like, <laughs> oh, can we bag out the whole series? It was like crack. Um, so that's how you got me to watch it, which was mm. basically, I was, I told you, I don't want to watch this. 
Um, and, and I challenged you. Said, you. I said, just watch two. And if you keep going, you keep going. Yes. Um, I said, I will do this. You know, I'm, I, I'm not a real big binger, right? Like I can go two episodes and then stop, watch a bunch of other things, do some reading. I don't know, make some phone calls, cook for myself, and then go back and watch some more a couple of days later. I don't like ingesting things in one sitting, but, um, there are a bunch of things that you wanted to talk about. So I, I had a few days to watch them. So I watched this in pretty much a day. Yeah. And it's very good. The last three episodes, um, are, are fantastic. I mean, it, it's the kind of show that you, I would never, I don't like the, well, you got to stick around for season four or, or episode four. Um, but this is one of those shows where it's it's a li- if you understand that it's limited it kind of gives you a sense of 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 the proportion in terms of like what you can like you should just watch the whole thing you just can't you can't quit after four episodes if it's just going to end forever after seven um, well the the thing that struck me mm-hmm. it's so meticulously done Yes, 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 it, yes, yes. It's just like so high level. The acting's great. Every little piece of it. And and it's, you know, set in the 1950s and 1960s, but doesn't there, they have a wide shot of Mexico City at one point. And you're like, how the fuck did they do that? I remember it, it that shot It is just fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I like your weight class thing. I don't feel like, I feel like Watchmen is almost like a super middleweight. It's a one season, but it's 10 episodes. This was like a middleweight. It's almost like different, different. Yeah. I'm, or maybe this is, this is a welterweight and Watchmen's middleweight because that yes. was 10 episodes. Right. Maybe right. it's no, like that. Yeah, Watchmen, Watchmen is nine. So I guess if you do it by like the number of episodes, like, I mean, because, you know, some some limited series and miniseries, you only have to have two, I think, to be considered a, a, a miniseries. So what's Rich Man, Poor Man and Roots? Those are like super, <laughs> super heavyweights. I mean, Roots. Come on. I rewatched yeah. Roots recently for this book. Um, and Roots is shockingly, it's still good. Is it really? There's some, what was it like 1976? 77. Wow. And there's some cheesy parts of it, but it still holds up as a, like it moved me Roots. I mean, the end still pisses you off because you can't believe that they're nobody, nobody's going to whip this white guy. Nobody's going to whip this guy back. Um, but if you also think about what that was for TV, there's never going to be another thing like Roots where like all of the sort of reparative energy and restorative justice that a, that a television network can, or a production can put to work. Cause it wasn't really ABC. It was more like the producers who got this thing made and cast. They took all of that energy and they used like 20 years of television history from the standpoint of white people to like make amends for like various injustices. I mean, ultimately we're just talking about entertainment, but as optics and symbolism, the idea that you had, you know, 20 years of holy white people playing the worst white people in the history of America who weren't also elected officials, although there is one bad Senator. Yeah. Uh, You've just got all, like, you know, Mike Brady. <laughs> right. Um, was Ed Grant, Asner in there? Ed Asner, but he's not, he's not a bad guy. He's a slave trader. He's a, he's a merchant who comes to realize he's in the slave trade and is like, mm. oh no, oh no. 
Well, I'm, I mean, old, I'm old enough to remember Roots because I was like six or so it was 77. I was either seven or eight. Right. And th this was when TV had that outsized importance because we didn't have anything yet. We didn't even have video games yet at this point. So 30 million people were watching everything. Roots felt like the biggest thing across everything for the two weeks it was on, whatever. It was the only thing anyone talked about. It was all over the place. Oh, it was yeah. on every magazine. We, we had to talk about it in school. Um, <laughs> it just, it dominated for yes. two weeks. Everybody watched it, even like little kids. And I, I don't think there will ever be a miniseries like that because I don't think there, it was bigger than a Super Bowl audience now. Yeah, you know, it's talking still... like 50, 60 million people watching it as it's being shown. It's still the, it's the number one, it's some technicalities in terms of where it is one, two, three, but it's definitely the, the biggest, I think the finale is still the number one highest rated television event in the history of television. Hmm. Um, and the series itself, I think is number three, the, you know, as a, as a, as a collected group of, of watched hours of television. Well, I think you solved this with the weight classes thing, because there's a big difference between four episodes, seven episodes, nine episodes, 13 episodes for what you can kind of do. I mean, technically the Queen's Gambit, every episode was an hour or even a little bit more than an hour. It's it's yeah. like a dense seven plus hours. I thought um, the lead actress is fantastic. And, okay. Uh, I just wasn't expecting that because I was the lady from The Nun, which is a Simmons family favorite horror movie. It was like, <laughs> wow, the lady from The Nun's in the Queen's Gambit? Queen's Gambit? What's happening? Uh and they, um, they had a Game of Thrones guy in there. It wasn't like an all-star cast. Who was that kid on Game of Thrones? His face looked so familiar, but I could not figure out which character he was. Right. You want to say it's Theon, but it wasn't. It was it's like not somebody Theon. who was like Theon's cousin. Yeah, I don't know right. who it was, but he did look very familiar. Because I looked him up and, I mean, again, like people are going to like throw their headphones across the room because we can't remember who this kid is. But he looked, I mean, I know he was on Game of Thrones. He looked very familiar, but I couldn't, he wasn't Joffrey. He was like, he was like busted Joffrey. Mm. Well, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, Joffrey's brother. Can we talk about, I want to talk about Anya Taylor-Joy, the woman who plays this character, the, yeah. the lead character, because- AKA Anya Taylor-Joy from The Nun. Yes. Um, and for me, she wasn't she also in um, that Shyamalan movie? Uh, She's been in a couple of things, yeah. The first, the first, um, the first of the, the second of the Glass trilogy, whatever. Anyway. Um, I really like her. There is a problem though for me. Okay. And it simultaneously kept me watching and distracted me. And it's that now I'm going to say this and I don't know if it's going to blow your mind or make you roll your eyes, but between the wigs and the eyes, all I saw in certain angles was Emma Stone. My wife said the same thing. I could not get past My wife it. asked me if they were, she made me look it up to see if they were related. Because she doesn't look like that in anything else. In the Shyamalan movies, she doesn't look like that at all. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen The Nun, so I will, I'll put that on my list of things to remember to do. Um, but in this, on this show, there was something about her that she has a star quality that just reminded me of Emma Stone's. And I feel horrible feeling this way because this woman is giving a great performance that I went in and out of because I was thinking about what it would have meant for Emma Stone to do it. And then there were times when I just felt like I'm watching Emma Stone. 
I'm just going to have to accept that because this thing is so good that I'm, I'm just going to have to move past it. Not fair to her, but what can you do? Well, I give it a, I give it a grade of a, uh, okay. it sounds like you're in the a minus range. B plus, uh, B plus, I'm a minus. I'm, I'm like B plus. Um, okay. we can talk about some things that, that bugged me, but we don't have um, to spoil it. What, no, but, no, no, no. I mean, I think it's, it's good enough to just keep going with, uh, I like it. Talk such about what a we fun, liked about it. Such a fun binge. I, to me, like six, seven episodes is the perfect number for this. And I got to yes. say like, so I'm watching the undoing at the same time, which we're going to talk about quickly and waiting every week for the next episode. There's something fun about that, right? It's like, oh yeah, this is coming up. At the same time, if the undoing was available all at once, I'd already be done with it. I would have gone through. Uh, you, you're, I can already, I can already tell you're, you would need like a lot of paper towels to wipe the grease off your hands. A lot of coffee. Kidman, who is just, she has a way of basically, even if she's playing a character, being able to summon some baggage for that character that you can yeah. feel in the performance, which I think is a really hard thing to pull off. The Big Little Lies performance, that yes. first season is one of the best performances I've seen anybody give in any medium ever. Did she win? She won the Emmy for that, right? I believe she won the Emmy. Yeah, for she that, was yes. unbelievable in that. And I... This is a person who I would say I've, I would think that I thought I saw her give, I thought I'd seen every great Nicole Kidman performance and she gets to big little lies and she finds yet something else. And I think that, you know, we don't, there's a, there are a couple, there's a couple things happening that make her exciting and that like make this show. I know the show is going to be hard for me to watch because it's just not going to have it for her and she's got to find it somehow. And that's like psychology that is built into the work. And then there's a psychology that she sort of creates for these characters. And she is the great, our great psychological actress. And, you know, there's something about, I still feel like she kind of was underrated for so long that there's so much catching up that, that, you know, are we talking about the industry? I don't know. Does she need more? I think she didn't get enough at the beginning. Um, like she's a, she was a really good speech giver that days, the thunder speech that she gives Tom Cruise, you know, the out of control in control speech. Days of thunder is good. Days of thunder. <laughs> yeah. Days of thunder is loaded too. Duvall's yeah. in it. Michael Rooker. Like it's got a great cast. Um, but she, I don't know. There's just something about her. She, well, you know she's what always happened? Been, she, what? Cruise was like, if she's an athlete, Cruise was her torn ACL. Oh, interesting. That's a She great. never meets Cruz. It's a much more interesting 90s for her. She's doing, I think there's a whole like thriller side of her that she would have tapped into. But you know, I she wonder, did it in Malice. I thought she was good in Malice. She's good in Malice. She's good in Malice. But that movie is sort of overshadowed by, by Alec Baldwin's, that great speech Alec Baldwin gives. Um, and, uh, and just Alec Baldwin going for it for two yeah, hours. Yeah, <laughs> that was, I mean, he's so good in that movie. <laughs> he really but she's is. also good in it. But I think that this is a great question. Like, what happens to her if she doesn't meet Tom Cruise? Well, the, there's a cynical answer, but let's just stay in the industry-oriented, um, non-cynical answer. And I think that I don't know what movies they put her in as a star, right? Because this is at a point where Julia Roberts is Julia Roberts. Sandra Bullock, it said, I mean, to be uncharitable to Sandra Maybe Bullock, she's in, she might be a boogie nights in the Julianne Moore part and taking swings like that. Yeah, but she would have been too young for that part. I mean, I don't know. She probably would have been a roller girl. 
I mean, yeah, she, she was kind of between Roller Girl and uh, Amber Waves. Yeah, I mean, she's I a mother like, to all who needs mothering. Right. Amber Waves. I mean, <laughs> I think that Nicole Kidman, it worked out for Nicole Kidman because I think that there was, I don't know if she would put it this way, but like, I wonder if there was a hunger in her to, to prove that she wasn't just this famous person's, she wasn't a, she wasn't this, she wasn't Tom a Tom Cruise's wife. Right. She wasn't like a, what, what is the, she's not the meal ticket, but he's the meal ticket, right? Well, like, she did that, she did that Bombback movie too. That was another one that she but that summoned was after. up. Yeah, after. Right. But I mean, that she's done this a few times with parts that she, these damaged characters that seem like they have it all together and then it falls apart. She's basically like the Michael Douglas of, <laughs> all those Michael Douglas parts when it seemed like he had it together and unraveled and she's right. doing the female version of that. But she starts out that way. Like she doesn't like she, the damage is usually pretty clear from the outside. That's fair. Yeah. And you know, did you see her in the human stain? Yeah. Not a good movie, but, and I don't even know if that performance works, but she gave it. <laughs> what about her and the invasion of the body snatchers? Uh, the 19th sequel they made of that movie. It's called Which like one? invasion. Oh yeah. Okay. She's pretty good in that. I don't mind that movie. The the um what is the Sydney Pollock movie with her and Sean Penn? The is it the it's not the Oh, it's like the Oh, it's Gunman it's the, Professional. Yeah, something like One that. One of those, she's, yeah. She's real I'm just going to look it up. There's a great scene where she gets on the bus and it's like it's like it turns into a science fiction movie because <laughs> Nicole Kidman's on like a like an MTA bus like like that would ever happen. Um, or if it did happen, uh, nobody, nobody, my, I didn't get a news alert, um, that Nicole Kidman was on the bus. Um, but I think she's just good in all kinds of things. What is that movie? The well, Interpreter. I like that. Oh the yeah. Interpreter. The Interpreter. I like yeah. that movie. I think your big little eyes point is important. I thought that yeah. was an amazing performance and it was sold to everybody as this group effort with, you know, Reese and Laura Dern and, and. Shailene Woodley, and she was like by far the best person in it. I recommend yeah. The Undoing. I, I'm a I fan. recommend. Okay, so here's what I Listen, would say: hey, overweight, <laughs> overweight, not quite looking as good, but still has that little charm. Hugh Grant, who might be oh, up to stuff. The uh, New York City private school good. stuff. Great use of nudity in the first episode. I really appreciate when nudity becomes a plot. Yeah, I didn't. I, I that sort of made me want to know where this movie, where this, where the show is going. But as far as Nicole Kidman goes, can I just say real quick? She yeah. had an amazing two thousands. She had the best two thousands of any Cruise. actor, any actor in, in the movies. Like she had a really good. I'd say from Eyes Wide Shut, which is ninety nine, but she goes straight from that Moulin Rouge, The Others, Birthday Girl. She's very good in The Hours. Dogville, Dogville being one of her top five performances. Um, Human Stain, Cold Mountain, my my favorite Nicole Kidman is a movie star performance. Mm. Birth, my one of my top five favorite Nicole Kidman performances, period. The Interpreter, she's really good. Bewitched, terrible movie. She's bad in it. Not her fault. Um, fur, she's really interesting in Fur. Um, I didn't see that one. Uh, you're, you're the Invasion, Margot at the Wedding. Margot at the Wedding, that was the bomb back one. Australia, the the second greatest Nicole Kidman. Well, actually, Moulin Rouge is the, is number two. I would say after um, Cold Mountain. Then Australia, not a great movie, but she's amazing in it. She's in Nine. She's really good in Rabbit Hole. She's really good in that Adam Sandler movie, Just Go with It, where she and Jennifer Aniston 
just are in the same space at the same time in an Adder's to Adam Sandler. <laughs> that movie's unbelievable. That's one of yeah. my kids' favorite movies. It, it is the Sandler gets a bad rap. He's actually had some good ones. Just go with it. Good movie. I stand by it. I disagree. It's terrible, but no. it's great to see. No, it's 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 good, terrible. <laughs> it, but there's we're in a scene. location, there's weird, crazy people in it, and that the the singing scene is fantastic. Yes. Ding ding ding. I was gonna yeah. say that is one of my favorite scenes in, in any movie, regardless of quality. And I will just end this. We just let's leap forward three years after uh, after just go with it, or two years after just go with it, and just say the paper boy. If you've not seen the paper boy, which Bill, have you seen this movie by the way? Oh, when it came out, I haven't seen it since. I mean, that is just one of the all time great roller coaster rides of crazy that you're ever going to see, and she is so committed to Lee Daniels' craziness. Yeah, um, everybody in that movie is, but especially her. Jesus Christ, she's so good. Anyway. So we recommend uh, the undoing. We're gonna take a, <laughs> we're gonna take a break and come back with some more. Hey, 2020 has changed the world of sports. You've seen some teams adapt. They've made changes in their stadiums and arenas. They've let fans buy virtual seats. And in some cases, those changes created demand for a wide range of unexpected roles, from plexiglass screen installers to video platform support specialists. So whether you have hiring needs for new positions like these or positions you're already familiar with, there's only one place to go, ZipRecruiter. Right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. When you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job sites. Then ZipRecruiter's matching technology finds the most qualified ones for your job and actively invites them to apply. It's no wonder four to five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. For a variety of industries, ZipRecruiter can help you find the right people for your roles, even with the new rules ZipRecruiter, a hiring game changer. That's why you need it to try it for free right now at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS, ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Don't miss your chance. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, we're going to talk about some movies that came out. We'll start with On the Rocks. I'm just going to go on the record and say I always enjoy Sofia Coppola's movies, even when I don't think they're good. I like her perspective. I like the nuances she puts in. I never am mad that I sat through the movie, whether I think it was a classic or one I would watch again, that's whatever, depends on the movie. Uh, Lost in Translation, I thought was just iconic and can't wait to do mm -hmm. it on the rewatchable someday. I don't really understand the point of this movie other than let's try to get Bill Murray an Oscar. I think she went into, the, went into this whole thing with, I'm going to get Bill Murray an Oscar. Start there. Write this awesome part. I'll make it a father-daughter movie. The part's going to be awesome. And then they just kind of started filming. I don't understand this movie at all. I, I, Sophia, everything you said about Sofia Coppola, I agree with. I'm a supporter. Even, I, even, I, I'm all in. I, I, but, but this is a flawed movie, period. It's worse than a flawed movie. It's, it's, it's like a, it's like a non-movie. Yeah. I feel like all the beats come from television. All the, this is not a, I don't know what I'm knocking here. I'm just saying that this is such a simple, this can be solved in 22 minutes of television. Do you <laughs> right, know what I mean? right. Like 22 minutes of like 1990s TV can solve this whole problem. And that's not good when, if I'm sitting there thinking this about, about a like 90, 
six minute movie. Um, I just didn't believe any of it. I didn't understand any of the relationships. Um, there are shots in this movie that make no sense to me. And I feel like she has lost her nerve, Sofia Coppola. I feel like something, I feel like she wants to be doing something that matters, but she isn't quite sure. She does not, I don't know if she's on Twitter. I don't know what her social media relationship is, but I feel like she is nervous about people misunderstanding what her intents are. You think I mean, the internet's like, in her head? I, I Something, I think something's in her head. Like there's, there's this movie just, okay. We need to really just, let's talk about the movie itself first. This is a movie about a married couple where a black married couple, Rashida Jones is the wife and Damon Wayans is the, is the Mar, sorry, Marlon Wayans Marlon is the Wayans. husband. And Marlon Wayans you know, he's a busy guy, always going on business trips. And at some point she gets into her, into her head. She's got, they've got two kids. They live in a really amazing loft in Soho on Worcester street. Um, the, the, the apartment is the apartment is the star of the movie, but anyway. Um, and she knows Great that kitchen. by the way, because you keep getting these terrible establishing shots of the outside of the building. that tell you nothing about what's going on inside, except we're about <laughs> to go inside, except you know what about establishing shots that doesn't make any sense to me is we go right inside after you tell us you're outside. And right. if you've been somewhere else for a little while, that makes sense. But the place, the movie only has two settings. Yeah. <laughs> Why do we need the establishing shots? Tell us we're in the apartment anyway. Um, so. The, the husband's going away on business trips. She gets in her head the idea that he might be cheating on her. So I, and, I guess this is supposed to be like basically female midlife crisis for somebody who has kids. Is what she, is, yes. I guess that's what she's going for. Is like I, I'm in my late thirties. I'm not as I'm not as smoking hot as I used to be. I have these two small kids, and I'm worried that somebody's going to steal my husband. Yeah. Is that the angle of this movie, basically? She's the character that Rashida Jones is playing is a writer who's got writer's block. And, and, and terrible outfits. My wife was furious the whole time. <laughs> Why are they doing this to her? What's up with these sweaters? Who dresses like this? How have her friends not had an intervention? My wife was furious. There is, but you know, I don't know if you're having this as you as you're consuming all this, all this visual culture, like especially TV and movies, where like people are out doing things. You know, in the old way before the pandemic, and you're just yeah. like, oh, "What are you doing? You right. house without a mask? <laughs> Don't like, touch them." Yes, or like that's a hug. Oh my god, what is that? Yeah, like there's a scene where Marlon Wayans and, and Rashida Jones go out to dinner, and the woman who comes over to like bring them their menu is the most glamorous person I have seen in a year, and she just got this amazing flower dress on and it's tailored perfectly and she, all she's doing is dropping off menus yeah. and I'm just like I want to be in that restaurant where that woman is because that is missing from my life right now and I live in right. New York City where this is a this can be a regular occurrence for me on like a Tuesday it's one of the best things of living in New York City not anymore not anymore <laughs> um anyway I I don't I didn't believe it I did not believe this movie worse than that I didn't care well you you assume it's going to pay off at the end and spoiler alert doesn't really feel like it does. I also look, there's two, there's two answers to this question. And I don't know what the answer is. Mm -hmm. Either Rashida Jones couldn't carry a movie like this or the part was poorly written and she didn't have a chance. 
and it's one or the other, but Bill Murray's like blowing her off the screen in their scenes. And in general, like I just didn't have a feel. All right, let's say, I don't know, let's say Rachel McAdams is in this part. Mm-hmm. That was with Fantasy and I were talking about like who would you put in this movie that like that just would make it, you know, basically like throwing a chainsaw in a hot tub. It would just be totally different. Somebody like Rachel McAdams, Carrie Washington. Mm-hmm. 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 Somebody yeah. who I feel like would would just be more I, I'd be more wondering as I'm staring at them on the screen, what are they thinking? What's going mm-hmm. through their head? Mm-hmm. Are they gonna mm-hmm. snap? And I just was never really there with the Rashida Jones character. I don't know if it was her fault or the writing. And then you have these scenes where like Bill Murray get getting out of the speeding ticket is an incredible five minute scene. And you think like, all right, wait, so this incredible movie that's in like, a good way. We need I, to talk about this scene. Keep going. I, keep I going. was in. I was in on that scene because he, she just like basically was like, I need to let Bill Murray cook for four minutes, and he just did Bill Murray stuff, and I'm like, the movie's alive. And then it's okay. like, oh, the movie's not alive anymore. We got to talk about this. Scene. Okay, go. But wait, I want to answer your Rashida Jones question. Yep. And I think part of the answer is in this in this in this scene where they get pulled over in his speeding convertible by the NYPD. And we should just say, just to make clear for anybody who has not watched this yet, Bill Murray is Rashida Jones's father in this film. And she is basically confided to him that she thinks that Marlon Wayans is cheating. And he takes this and kind of runs with it. I don't know if Sofia Coppola is mining her own life for this, um, but I can't imagine a more interesting movie in which Francis Ford Coppola and Sofia Coppola like run around the world trying to catch whoever Sofia Coppola is right. married to in, in infidelity. But in the meantime, we get these two. And I would say to answer your question about Rashida Jones, the writing is not there for her. It's yeah. not that, because what I do with movies like this where you are, are gradually aware that that one of the people in this comedy is not going to get to be as funny as the other person. You always as funny. She's to, literally unfunny. Right, right. But but you try to figure out is it is it the actor's problem or is it the writing? And I always my my two classic examples of this of the solutions for the I mean there are many let's just go through some examples where like the, 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 and it's always the woman. It's never the man that has this problem. The men are all, the, they're, they're always, you know, our great comedians never have this problem with at least the material and the ability to sort of take material and, and, and sublimate it into something greater than it probably is on the page. But women don't get to do that. And it's not because they can't. So here are some examples in which women can. And this isn't quite sublimation. This is just great writing, but let's yeah. just go there. Um, Julie Haggerty in, um, Mm. Lost in America. Uh, she's as funny as he is. And she's got more surprises up her sleeve than he does. The writing is totally there for her. Mm. And she is there for the writing to, to let her go where she needs to go. Terry Garr in everything. Um, Terry Garr is the great, was, you know, she's the greatest second banana the 80s had. And the the the, top four Letterman guests. Oh, on top top, of it. Yes. Bar none Uh, or bar three, I guess. Uh, (laughs) uh, Gina Davis in anything where anybody lets her be funny, notably quick change, a movie she did not have to be funny in movie doesn't entirely work, but she, it's not because the writing isn't there for her. Um, She, she's, I want to redo her career. Oh, 
That's Even in great... Fletch, we had this argument when we did Fretz Rewatchables. If you just switch the parts and make Gina Davis the lead and you just make her Mrs. Underhill, the movie's way better. And Chris oh. Ryan got so upset. He's like, no, Dana Willard Nicholson. I'm like, we're, and we're like, no, Chris. You no kidding way. me? Gina Davis no is a better movie. Sorry. In Tootsie. She's in Tootsie for like a nanosecond. Yeah. And she's so good in her scene. Yeah. Also a great Terry Garr movie. Also a great Bill Murray movie. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Tootsie, great American movie. If you've not seen Tootsie, oh my God, I wish I could watch it next to you wherever Tootsie you did really well in the in the awards and all that stuff that year too. That was one of the big movies yeah. in nineteen eighty two. I don't I haven't watched it in a while. I'd be interested to see if uh, you know, with how uptight everybody is in two thousand twenty, if there were things in there that would make people upset. No, I've watched it recently. It's it's it holds up as a perfect, perfect, perfect movie. Anyway, Rashid. I Jones. love that movie. Yeah. I I feel like she does not get a chance. This is the this is what happened to Carrie Washington in that Chris Rock movie, I think I love my wife. Oh my um, god. I just watched that like four weeks ago. And she's I, I mean, she's trying to put up 47 points, 15 rebounds, <laughs> and 17 assists, and she's playing with G Leaguers. It's tough. Airball. Yeah. Airball. I mean, she's going just, for it in that movie, though. Yes, yes. But she tries, but Gina Torres, Gina Torres is the real victim in that movie, writing-wise. Like, mm. Gina Torres has no humor, nothing to do. I hate movies where you have a great comedian and the only person allowed to be funny is the great comedian. It's the Mariah Carey music video win fan problem <laughs> where, like, everybody in a Mariah Carey music video is, like, like in a like a funhouse mirror and she is, like, looking slim and sexy while everybody right. else is, like, tubby, not that well lit. You know, it, I love Mariah Carey. She's one of my favorite human beings, but she it's did a, a strong rig move. the videos. She did rig the videos in her favor. Well, um, it's like the old move of when you, if the people who have weddings, but they make sure there's no bridesmaid who tops them and, <laughs> and, the, and that they pick. Yeah. So <laughs> I just feel like anytime you've got a good actor or an interesting person opposite one of our great comedians, I mean, is there a woman who was as funny as Eddie Murphy in a movie that he was also in? Well, my girl, Lisa Eckenbacker, whatever her name is, I, I always enjoyed her a couple scenes, but she's throwing herself at Eddie in the bed. Oh. Beverly Hills cop. Oh yeah, yeah. Axel wants no part of it. He's didn't not horny at all. Didn't want that. Did yeah. not. Did he's, not. Was not he's still interested. He's still mourning his dead friend, <laughs> who he's in love with. Uh, yeah, look, so, Rashida Jones. I, I don't know if 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 you put like a major star in this part, I think it's probably maybe it's like when Reese Witherspoon was in that James L. Brooks softball movie, and it's just oh, she was going for an, it, couldn't really get it done. But there's another one where the writing was there for her. It just was the writing wasn't good. Like yeah. Holly Hunter and Broadcast News. Another one. That's another one. Doesn't need to be funny. That Melanie Griffith and Working Girl. Like yeah. you can just go through all of these movies where, I mean, you know, Harrison Ford is not a great comedian, but. So but, we don't recommend this movie other than it's always worth it to watch a Sofia Coppola movie, but we're basically prepared to be slightly disappointed. I did not like the last 15 minutes at all. I, I kind of couldn't believe the last 15 minutes. And my mom was so minutes. upset because I told my mom, like, new Sofia Coppola movie, you know, because she loves Lost in Translation. And she Wait. was, like, furious after. Let's talk about the cop scene real quick. Okay. So they get in this car. They go for a drive. The cops pull them. Like, they go for a crazy drive because, like, Bill Murray is trying to chase yeah. uh, Marlon Wayne's car because the, he thinks that they think that, they're like, he's in a cab 
with the woman that this coworker that he's allegedly having an affair with. But he's they in like in this, a two hundred thousand dollar nineteen sixty four Porsche, yeah. going through all the New York City potholes. It makes no sense. Right. I don't know how that works. He just yeah. he's so rich he doesn't give it. He must have another yeah. one somewhere. He can just throw that out and get a new one. Anyway, the police pull him over. They are very classic NYPD. Get like just get like you know very aggressive. You know, license and registration, please. And he is just proceeds to charm his way out of the ticket by conveniently knowing the father of the arresting officer. Or like yeah. he's not arresting in the officer. This is like, his Oscar clip scene, just so you know. We'll be watching yeah. the Oscars on Zoom and they will be showing this clip. So be careful. Well, I'm not watching the Oscars if that happens. Anyway, <laughs> this this scene is supposed to be a charming, funny, ha-ha scene where Bill Murray talks his way out of a speeding ticket or whatever other ticket they're trying to give him to. I don't know how many things he's guilty of in that scene, but maybe yeah. three. Anyway, he then, the cop is is charmed by how much Bill Murray knows about the cop's family. He's very charming. And, right. And so when this, okay, I'm, I'm on board with all of this, right? Like I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't like it, but I, I'm curious to see how Sofia Coppola handles it. Right. Because you have to remember in the car of this whole encounter is his black daughter who is sitting there not saying anything. And when the scene is over, this is how, you know, the writing is not there for an actor or, or like the writing doesn't even know who the actor or the character is necessarily. So when the scene is over, Bill Murray is like, you know, giving like lights up as a movie star, charms this cop out of giving him a ticket, if not worse, and gets back into the car. And Rashida Jones's only line in response to all of this shenanigans is, you must, what a charmed life you must lead or something like that. Or it must be mm. nice having your life. This is A, her father. End scene. Right. This, right. That's the, that's the end of the scene. This is a man that's been in her life her entire life, like yeah. more or less. Like she should know what he's going to do when he gets out of the car. She knows. I it's mean, it's your but, father. Or, or let's say this is set in 2020, or at least 20, like anytime after 2015. Wasn't wouldn't this be an opportunity to sort of like give your your like obnoxious, oh. super privileged white dad a stern talking to? I know that's not a thing that like a, like a light comedy is supposed to be doing, but you have to remember this is also a movie that is taking marriage somewhat seriously enough to have her and her dad creepily pursue her husband, maybe having an affair with somebody he works with. So if you're going to throw this scene in here, why not just give it everything you can throw at it, but she doesn't have anything. The charm for her, Sofia Coppola, I mean, is that You've got this movie star who can charm his way out of out of life with the police. Now, maybe we're supposed to intuit from that that this is this is what it's like. This is how hard it is for white people to be pulled over by the police. Uh, I don't even think they're going for that. I don't think they're going for that at all. Can but, I tell like, you my first crush ever was Rashida Jones's mom? <laughs> Peggy Lipton? Yeah. Okay. Mod Squad, my first favorite show. In love with Peggy Lipton. Yeah, the late great, the late great Peggy. Peggy yeah. All right, we don't need to talk about that movie anymore. We got two more. But Rashida Jones, I wish the best for you. I, I, me too. I, She's really likable. I just Jones. thought it just wasn't a good part, and I don't know if it was her fault or the writing or both. She is um, funny on Black AF. She's the only. She's the only thing I laughed at on that whole terrible ass show. Sorkin movie. We got to talk about. <laughs> oh, I'd rather talk about on the rocks. Just quickly. 
Just okay. g- give me your 60 seconds on uh, on the Chicago <sighs> 7. Oh, my. Well, 60 seconds. I can give you one. Why? Why? I don't understand. If, if you were to ask me what is the one subject that Aaron Sorkin, how do I put this? What is the one American event that epitomizes the sort of liberal, the worst liberal impulses of Aaron Sorkin in the the sort of least um, elastic possible setting? I'm not sure this is making any sense, but like, no, what is I, the American event that is the most obviously Sorkin-esque in its, in its like corruption, incompetence, and, and courtroom moral, scenes and, and moral stakes a lot like via the courtroom. Um, I would probably say the trial of the Chicago seven as an event. And I was, I have always been like quietly relieved that he never touched this because, you know, there are all these other aspects of American history and American life or like American subjects, right? Like the presidency is the thing he returns to over and over again. Um, but here he does the most obvious thing he can do and makes this movie and he doesn't seem to have a real reason to have done it. Like, I don't know why this movie, I don't, I don't know what the, the sort of greater reason for him to attack this subject. Um, and I do mean attack. Uh, When you're talking about, I don't know why the people in the trial of the Chicago seven were kids. Right. They weren't old. Right. They were well, young people. I mean, a couple of the lawyers and stuff were old, but like Abby Hoffman, all those people, they were, I don't know, 25 and under. Yep. Yep. Sasha Baron Cohen is my age. Um, He's like 49. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then the guy from Succession, I don't know how old he is, but he's at least 40. Eddie Redmayne's 38. The Eddie Redmayne casting single-handedly reduced the ceiling of this movie for me. I thought he was completely overmatched. I have no idea why he was in it. He's British. He's too old and he did a shitty job in the movie. It's it's really like <laughs> it's the fucking perfect storm. He, he hit a grand he hit for the triple crown of everything you don't want in this movie. And that was the key part. <laughs> I have to like Tom Hayden but also have complicated feelings for him for this movie to work. The one who was great was Rylance as uh as William Kunstler, the lawyer. Another and he's Brit. actually doing a nuanced performance. More importantly, right. he was the right age of the guy. Right, right, right. Um but I don't Did, know. It, it was fr- I, it was a frustrating movie. I was glad I watched, but I left it like ah. Well, I mean, this it's one of those movies where like nothing works. Everybody is. It's like um, this is the worst version of this is this is the worst kind of movie I've seen like this since Lions for Lambs. Do you remember that that Robert oh, Redford yeah, movie yeah. with Meryl Streep and Tom Cruise? It's very important. Um, very important and, movie. Right. <laughs> Very weighty. It's one of the most embarrassing movies I've ever seen that is also so, like, part of the embarrassment is that it's such a liberal movie made by a person we all know is a liberal, is like a right-minded, like, right-thinking, um, like, good, quote-unquote, good person. Um, but the the sort of import of the material is so it's so important to the person making the movie that they can't see straight and so redford is making a movie that is all about his his political 
ideology in many ways. And he can't, he we've, just won't we've let talked any... about this. We've talked about this for too long. The lines for lines for lamp should never be more than 30 seconds on a podcast. All right. So moving back to the, to the Sorkin movie, I just think the thing that's embarrassing about, about the Chicago seven movie is that there's no counter, there's no countervailing force against Sorkin's, um, his righteous anger. And I think that the reason that he can get away with some of these things like the social network and, and, um, what's it like a few good men or the American president is that, you know, Rob Reiner in two of those cases and David Fincher in another are there to essentially, um, provide some, some, some zig to his zag, right? Like, like Reiner is working in genres in the first two movies. And, you know, cause I don't think Sorkin is good at, he's not a good director for one thing, but he also needs somebody to like contain the movie somehow, right? Like to put it in either the box of the, of the director's style, right? So, you know, he needs a, like a, like an Elton John to his Bernie Taupin, right? Somebody mm. who can make amazing music with, you know, pretty good lyrics, pretty good to, if not great lyrics. Yeah, but I don't think that was the problem with this movie though. I, to me, you don't think it was also badly directed? Well, I don't know if it was, I, you know, would it have been better if it was Steven Soderbergh? Probably. But to me, the, the whole point of the movie is like, it's this revolution that as a son of two people from this generation who were in the protest and did the whole thing. Like I, this is what I grew up watching or listening to. Right. And there's no youth in this movie. That no. was the thing that was amazing yeah, to me. That's a great point. That's a great it point. It was like a bunch of older actors doing a, a stage play of the Chicago seven. Whereas like I, I needed youth and energy for this. Cause that's what this whole thing was about. This is the culmination of this whole era when you had all these young music bands and Crosby stills, Nash and young and people like that. And they're all yeah. swept up in this cause. And, and the judge represents, you know, the old way of doing things. And he's just a flat out racist and he sucks. He hates these people cause they have long hair. Frank Langella plays him in the movie. And Frank Langella's pretty good. Here's the yeah. funny thing, though. HBO made an awesome version of this in the in 87, I think. Oh, they, yeah. And it was one of the first great TV movies they ever made. And when I was in high school, I I watched it a bunch of times. I just loved it. Mandy Patankin was uh was Abby Hoffman. And even oh. though he's a little too old, he was awesome. Robert Loggia was Kunstler. Pink Patinkin. Kunstler or Kunstler? I probably said the wrong. Kunstler. Kunstler, okay. Uh but there's there's really good Harris Eulens in it. There's really good <laughs> actors, and it's just as it's just a more effective treatment. It's stuck in the courtroom, and um, but still, like I gotta say, for there's a whole generation that doesn't know about like the Bobby Seal part. When oh yeah, they basically I mean that part was really affecting, and I I don't mind that he tried to make the movie, but I kind of wish he had just written it and let somebody else cast it, and maybe even yeah. direct it. I feel like the 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 thing from I mean your point about the youth thing I don't even know what to say about that except you're totally right. Um I I I there's something missing in this movie and it's like authenticity. There's like there's like a realness that is not working for me. And the idea that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is maybe the youngest person in the cast by far. I think I think, I think maybe Yahya Abdul-Mateen is 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 like they're the youngest two people in the movie. So he's really good and then the the his 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 colleague who gets killed 
which is a pretty famous Black Panther death and a really good Google dive because that guy, yeah. they just went in and shot that dude. Yeah. He's really good too. He's the guy from, uh, was it Loose or one of those other ones? What, something that came out last year. Which guy? His buddy who gets killed. Oh yeah, that guy was somebody. You know, I watched this and it really went out of my head is the other thing. Oh. Um, no, that guy's Kelvin a good actor Harrison. though. Yeah, was that's it who Kelvin it was. Harrison? Kelvin Harrison. That was Kelvin Harrison? Yeah, and he's really good at that movie. I, I was oh so mo much more interested in the Bobby Seale, Kelvin Harrison side of this movie versus the people I was supposed to be caring about. So anyway, yeah. uh, let's talk about a movie you you loved. I think you loved. Bad Hair? <laughs> yeah, I did like this movie a lot. Um, this will be the okay. one we had. Let's end on this. I, I, I feel like I should say that um, it, it's on okay. Hulu, by the way, if you it's, want to check it out. It's on Hulu. Here, the plot is it is is pretty simple. We're in 1989. We're at a um, corporate-owned black entertainment television BET-style music program network, um, and there during the height of like the Paul Abdul kind of music era when. Yeah. Yes. It's like the 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 queen of this era is jo are Jody Watley and Janet Jackson. Great era. Um, I love this era. One of my favorite like periods in all of American popular music. Got a little Keith um, Sweat and Luther Vandross on the other side. There's just some ding, great stuff ding, going ding. on. Guy is guy is like my favorite band at yeah. this point. Teddy Riley's guy. Anyway, uh the 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 goings on behind the scenes at this network involve Vanessa Williams basically coming in and taking over the programming division of a of a company that is essentially owned by um by Dawson, Dawson's Creek's uh Vanderbeek. Yeah, James Vanderbeek. Look, look great. He looks he looks yes, I look agree. great. Looked like he stepped right off the Dawson's Creek set, just he threw looks, out a blazer and and was in the movie. Looking looking fantastic. So is Vanessa Williams for that matter, even though she's got like a giant. I don't know what that is on her head. We're, that's what the movie's about. So at some point, there's an executive assistant. There's an there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a producer on this at this network who is hoping for a promotion. Vanessa Williams comes in and like cleans house essentially, but gives this you know aspiring producer some advice, which is stop wearing your hair natural. Um, you gotta you gotta get a look that makes more sense uh, for this for the where this network is going. Mm. And gives her some advice to like get her hair done. So she goes to the salon. She goes to the salon to to like get her hair done. And she's also got some residual hair trauma from getting her hair straightened. Now, Bill, I have to ask you. Well, let me finish the plot. So she goes and gets her hair done, basically. And what that is in 1989 is getting a weave installed in your hair. Um, you get somebody else's hair sewn into your own hair to get like long, fancy expensive looking locks that essentially are for our purposes, white, mm -hmm. um, or less black. Um, but you know, having a weave is itself a black experience. It is somehow like adjacent, white adjacent, but not at all white. It's a fascinating thing we can talk about in a different show. Um, so the hair is possessed and begins killing people. That's the movie. Um, <laughs> it's, it's honestly one of these movies that is so creative the setup where you're you're just watching it going the first 20 minutes you're just like how did somebody think of all this what yeah. made them set it in 1989 there are these nuances to it that i, I was just really delighted by 
Just like, right. how does somebody come up with this? How stoned did you have to be or how creative do you have to be to just map this out and then explain this to whoever is paying for it? So here's my idea. It's 1989. <laughs> it's like a BAT type TV station. And this lady has hair trauma from early and, and now her hair is killing everyone. I, I can't even imagine how this got made. Well, and it was I really good. Somebody at some network, I don't, I mean, whoever, this is a Hulu thing. Justin Simeon, we should say. But I think Hulu the, bought it though. This was, this was, I think a movie that I think. Oh, like a Sundance Sor movie or something like that. I think Sorkin had the same issue where it was, okay. it was a movie for the big screen that got sold to a streamer. I would have loved to have seen this movie with an audience. I really would have liked I to I was go, thinking go that the whole time. This would have Court been such Street, a good movie theater movie. Yeah. It would have been, it would have, because I think that there's something, Justin Simeon is the writer and the, and the director. He is the guy behind Dear White People, both the movie and the television show. He is such a wit. He is such a good director. Um, he's a good writer. And I think that, so for, an, for this movie for like 42 minutes, is one of the smartest satires of American culture that I've ever seen, mm. especially once you factor in the question, like the issue of race and and class and, you know, and family essentially and beauty. It, it, it also really understands the milieu of 1980s music television, right? That there is a look and in order to have that, in order to be successful, you have to look like downtown Julie Brown or Jody Watley or pleasure principal era Janet Jackson. Um, or even like Jay Farrow, who I thought was pretty good in this movie. Oh but yeah, his, he looks like Big Daddy his, Kane. His hairdo he's, is just perfect. It's like so 1989. I loved it. He's he he's good and his costuming is great. Whoever did the hair and costuming on this show, bravo to you, or this movie, bravo to you. Yeah, um, I love that. I like that the special effects were kind of campy and not yes. like the conjuring. Right. You know, where so, they spent like seven million dollars on making her hair kill people. It was just kind of <laughs> it was a little more low budget, which I think kind of fit in with the feel of the movie. Um, yeah, I mean, it's essentially it's essentially a Japanese horror movie set at BET. Yeah. Um, so you have all these, but you know, it's funny because in the way that like I don't always understand why the horror is happening in in a Japanese or, or South Korean horror movie, I totally understand what the what the nature of the horror is in this film. But I own I understand it because I am a black person who has lived his entire life with black women. And I understand the cosmetics industry in relation to them. And so this isn't a mystery what the metaphor is for the hair and like why right. it's killing and like what it's about and, you know, the sort of ideological argument against um, the sort of like uh, augmented beauty that black women put themselves through. Um, it is taking a stand on what in certain black households is a controversial issue. But mm. I wonder, like, did you know that while you watched this or was this like as mysterious to you? No, I did. I, I, okay. I got it. Okay. I got that. <laughs> like you don't need me to explain to you. No, I did. I, I, it was interesting. It was a metaphor, but it, it was, it was like a next level of it where he knew that we knew it was the metaphor. So he actually went, I thought deeper into it. I, my biggest issue was the lead actress was fine. I like, Oh her. yeah. Let's talk about her. I kept watching this whole movie thinking this is the movie I always wanted Issa Rae to be in. 
Oh, interesting. Here's, because here's I a- think that part was, it. there's a funniness to it that I don't feel like she totally tapped into. Hmm. It, you had to feel almost like, I, I, it was a, it's a horror comedy, we should say. I don't know if we said that at the top. Right. Yeah. And I didn't, it's very I didn't funny. Think, For 42 minutes, it's very funny. I just would have, I, uh, I still feel like there's a great Issa Rae movie that's going to happen at some point. I don't know what it is. And I don't even know if it would have been this, but I, it was the luck. kind of performance that I wanted. You don't think so? I mean, she just got to, she's got to let her guard down. Her guard is up. Yeah. It's, she's got to internet though. down. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but like, it is very frustrating to just see all these, all these performers just let go. Um, like Vanessa Williams in this movie, like Lita Waite is, is, a, has a small part as one of the hosts on one of these shows yeah. and her understanding of who this character is just by the hair she has yeah. is so great. Um, I really liked it. Hey, can we talk before we go? Just give me 20 seconds on Mank. Everyone went nuts. <laughs> Fincher. Oscar it's really- favorite. It's, you you, it, you concur or are you a little down on it? It's really good. Okay. It's really good. I did not care. I did not watch this movie wanting to see it. Like, I just didn't. None of it interested. I mean, the history, the Hollywood history interested me, but like, I'd rather get that from a book in many ways. Like, I've read right. all about this era. Um, there's some good, I mean, there's good reading to be done about it. Um, but it is such, like, it is such a pleasurably intelligent movie and it's not Fincher. There's no, to the extent that there's ideology in this film, it is a really about the difference between a writer and a director and what a writer can do that a director can't and, and what a director can do and a writer can't. The movie was written by Fincher's dad, Joseph. Yeah. And the screenplay is, oh my God, it really makes you want screenwriting to return to the center of American movie making again. It is such a great piece of writing. It's so witty and so well-structured and not afraid to sort of take up the structure of Citizen Kane. While also, to, for anybody, this is a movie about um, Herman Mankiewicz's writing Citizen Kane in, ni- in the early 1940s. And it jumps back and forth between the 30s when he's, yeah. you know, sort of at the height of his powers um, and at the 1940s where he's sort of like washed up and drunk um, and, and, you know, just burning all his bridges, um, in pursuit of, as he's writing Citizen Kane, one of the great movies ever made. Um, and it just is not afraid to be as good as Citizen Kane in so many ways. Wow. Um, so you loved not, it. I right, really, don't tell really, me anything more. Cause I haven't seen it yet. I don't, I don't want to know anything. I just, but I, I will say, I'll just say that, um, uh, Amanda Seyfried, as Marion Davies is Jesus Christ. Amanda Seyfried? Out of nowhere. Yes. Amanda Seyfried. What the hell? Yep. Really? Yep. Yeah. I feel like Sean Fennessy and I could have a very long uh, Amanda Seyfried conversation. She's so good in this movie. She's so, so good. I want you to know something. Yes. I never, ever sold my stock of hers. <laughs> I kept it forever. Yeah. I mean, I watched this movie and like, I don't know if you've had this this year, but like, you know, I've spent a lot of my movie writing at the paper writing about the past. I know. Um, And I, and this movie is set in the past, but it's the first thing that I have seen 
since you know the pandemic started that I mean it's bad hair does this a tiny bit but like in a much different and less powerful way but it just sort of restores my faith in movie making mm. um it made me excited to go back to a movie that people like really worked hard to make from top to bottom and all that work is apparent in like the the wording um just in the language that people get to speak to each other it it is it is just such a pleasure to watch it well, really really is I hope we get to hang out in person at some point. Who knows? Who knows when? I hope the country is a lot more normal the next I time. I was we about talk. to say, I mean, yeah. uh, the keep theme your fingers song crossed. For your show, Bill, has never felt more true than it, like, you know, that whole song is, is I know. <laughs> yeah. We were trying to take people's mind off it with basketball movies and TV for the last two hours. Uh, good luck out there. Good luck to you in New York. It was good to see you as always. And it's great uh, to see you. Still processing is the podcast that Wesley's on and he still writes for the New York Times as I still well. do that. We'll be back uh, on Thursday on this podcast with uh, Million Dollar Picks and hopefully, um, hopefully it'll be a nice, peaceful Thursday. Uh, stay safe out there. Thanks. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.